Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and uh, we thank very much our witnesses for being here. And as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll start there. I want, uh, I, you know, have very much enjoyed the service of Ann Patterson, who's not leaving, so I'm not going to focus on her uh, this morning, but we thank her for professionalism and visit her, as many have, uh, in her various assignments around the world, and appreciate so much her professionalism. General Allen, uh, I have to tell you, we admire so much your service to our country over the last 43 years. Um, your willingness uh, to do what you've done most recently um, in the State Department. Uh, your direct, transparent, uh, always helpful manner in dealing with all of us. And uh, we wish you well as you move on to another chapter here very soon. You're very kind to be in here. I know you don't like doing these kinds of hearings. Uh, I, we, I love them, Chairman, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, as you know, tried to, we had planned to have General Allen in a closed session. Uh, and uh, I've always found him to be so much more helpful to us in that type of setting just because of the uh, tremendous knowledge you have about what's happening on the ground and your ability to communicate it effectively. I know that it was decided that we were going to have an open hearing in this manner. and. Hope that won't inhibit you much, especially since you're on the way out the door. Uh, but uh, we cannot thank you enough for your tremendous service to our country. Thank you. Um, thank you, Chairman. Absolutely. I know that uh, General Allen will focus more on Syria and Iraq. Uh, Ambassador and Secretary Patterson will focus on the entire region. Yesterday, we had a two-and-a-half-hour session with Secretary Kerry. Uh, Secretary Patterson was a part of that, or at least witnessed what was said. I know today she'll have the opportunity to talk more broadly about the region. I know General Allen will focus uh, more so on, on Iraq and Syria. But look, we're having a series of hearings. I think the American people and all of us are somewhat uh, confused about what our efforts are. I know that many Americans uh, believe that we are disengaged from the Middle East, and yet we still have 40,000 troops uh, stationed in the Middle East in various capacities. We certainly have robust economic efforts that are underway um, and many other people-to-people -people type engagements that are occurring. So I think this gives us a tremendous opportunity to explore that for all of you to be open and honest with us about where we are. I'm sure there'll be uh, uh, some pretty strong questioning that will take place, but we thank you for being here. And with that, I'll turn to, uh, to our uh, outstanding ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I first want to join you in uh, welcoming both of our witnesses. Secretary Patterson's doing an incredible job in a very challenging region of the world. Um, of all the regional uh, secretaries, you, you picked the one with the most challenge, so uh, thank you very much for your service. And I, I agree with the Chairman and his observations of General Allen. We, we thank you so much for your service. Uh, and, and let me, if I might, just quote from what Secretary Kerry said, because I think he expressed our views of all the members of Congress when he said about General Allen, he has worked relentlessly to build a vision among diverse groups of nations and bind them together with a common purpose. General Allen traveled to more than 30 capitals around the world, and so doing, garnered international support for a multifaceted approach to attack and diminish the threat posed by this brutal terrorist group. And I think, uh, General Allen, uh, I just really wanted to express appreciation of the members of this committee for your incredible public service throughout your entire career, and thank you very much for that. Uh, as the chairman pointed out, uh, we've had a series of hearings uh, in regards to the Middle East, 
Uh, some have been very specific in its, uh, in its focus. This one's more general uh, as to the current uh, challenges in the U.S. role and strategy in the Middle East. Uh, I think first we, we need to, to underscore our interest uh, in this region of the world. Yes, it is to stop the spread and use of weapons of mass destruction. It is uh, clearly uh, to make a, it, uh, to underscore our commitment to Israel's security. It's for counterterrorism and the spread of violent extremism. It's good governance and respect for human rights. And that's one area that I have concentrated on because uh, I think U.S. makes it very clear without good governance and respect for human rights, you cannot have long-term stability and security in a country. Uh, considering the energy resources in that part of the world, it's ensuring freedom of navigation and free flow of Congress, a commerce, and it's certainly ending the regional uh, civil wars, uh, recognizing that that is critically important, not just for stability and security in the region, but the humanitarian crisis that we see today from the refugees fleeing the civil war in Syria. So against this backdrop of broad U.S. interests, then what are our objectives and what considerations should shape U.S. strategy uh, going forward? And that is the purpose for today's hearing to, to, to understand uh, the strategies that the United States is employing. We certainly want to enable all citizens to live lives of dignity and equal opportunity. Uh, so there are substantial challenges in so many countries uh, in that region. We have now completed the Iran deal. What are the consequences moving forward? We don't expect Iran to change its behavior. How do we counter its uh, problematic uh, activities in that region concerning terrorism and its ballistic missiles operations? How do we deal with the problems in Yemen? How do we deal with the problems in so many other countries in that region? Uh, and I look forward to a robust discussion with our two witnesses today. Thank you. Um, thank you, Senator Cardin. Our first witness is the Honorable Ann Patterson, Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Again, thank you for being here. A second witness today is General John R. Allen, Special Presidential Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIL. Uh, we thank you. Uh, you both have been here before. If you would summarize your comments uh, in about five minutes, if you would, we have your testimony without objection. It'll be entered into the record, and we look forward to, to Q&A. And if you would start, Ann, we'd appreciate it. Okay. Thank, uh, you. thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear today. I am honored to appear with General John Allen, our distinguished special presidential envoy. We were both just back from trips to the region. I know you received a full readout of the Secretary's trip yesterday. Uh, I have submitted a full statement for the record. The roots of the unprecedented instability we are witnessing in the Middle East are deep and systemic. To protect U.S. interests amidst this volatility, we have to recognize and cope with the challenges that states across the region face. Weak political legitimacy, ineffective institutions, an enormous demographic youth bulge, lagging economies, religious sectarianism, and a lack of consensus on the role of Islam in politics. Our most urgent priority is to combat ISIL, which is preying on weak states to terrorize citizens and to create a massive humanitarian disaster. There are no easy or quick fixes for these daunting challenges. However, there are some success stories, notably in Tunisia, and I look forward to next week's ceremony to celebrate the National Dialogue Quartet's winning of the Nobel Peace Prize. We are determined to continue helping Tunisia stabilize its fragile democracy 
grow its economy, and build its security institutions. Likewise, in Iraq, Prime Minister Abadi has made progress in reconciling Sunni-Shia differences and has courageously tackled corruption. We have a long road ahead, but we have stopped ISIL's territorial expansion and are helping stabilize areas liberated from ISIL. The administration succeeded in signing an agreement to remove the biggest threat to our security, Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon. We are fully cognizant of the challenges ahead with implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The U.S. will lift nuclear-related sanctions only after the IAEA has verified that Iran has completed the retired uh, nuclear steps. Building on the historic summit that President Obama held at Camp David in May, we are helping our Gulf allies, Gulf allies counter Iranian aggression by building their defensive military capabilities and by limiting Tehran's ability to support proxies like Hezbollah. In Lebanon, we are strengthening the armed forces, targeting Hezbollah's financial support structure, and urging the government to elect a president. Egyptians are voting in parliamentary elections, and we are helping Cairo fight ISIL-affiliated terrorists in Sinai, strengthen its border with Libya, and create jobs necessary for political stability. At the strategic dialogue in August, Secretary Kerry emphasized the need for Egypt to improve its human rights record, and we will continue to press for expanding freedoms for the Egyptian people. Secretary Kerry initiated meetings last week with Prime Minister Netanyahu, Palestinian Authority President Abbas, and Jordan's King Abdullah that resulted in a path to ease tensions, uh, to ease Israeli-Palestinian tensions. We condemn the violence against both Israelis and Palestinians in the strongest possible terms and welcome the steps the parties have agreed to calm the situation. Libyans are inching closer to a government of national accord due to the work of the U.S., our European allies, and the U.N. A national unity government will give us the counterterrorism partner we need to stabilize Libya. In Yemen, the Houthis and representatives of former President Saleh and President Hadi have agreed to direct consultations that we hope will begin soon. We are pressing the Saudi coalition to de-escalate its military campaign and ensure unfettered humanitarian access for assistance to the Yemeni people. Syria has been the subject of intense U.S. diplomacy. There is no military solution, and the international community cannot afford a continuation of the status quo, which yields only unending humanitarian catastrophes and refugee flows. Russia's military adventurism is directly aimed at U.S.-supported moderate opposition forces and was prompted because the Assad regime was losing territory and control. But we know Moscow does not want an unlimited commitment in Syria. As Secretary Kerry told you yesterday, he believes that now is the time to make a maximum effort to end the Syrian conflict. The solution can only come through a political transition. The Russian, Turkish, and Saudi counterparts we brought together last Friday in Vienna agreed on this. And in two days, Secretary Kerry will bring together a larger group to help begin a political process among Syrians to negotiate a political transition. We have no illusions about the prospects for success. Our differences with Russia, Iran, and the Assad regime are very substantial. But the benefits of ending this conflict and giving the Syrian people a government that respects them are even greater. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, the Middle East and North Africa is a deeply troubled region where profound challenges impede the 
better, economically successful, and politically stable future that the vast majority of people across the region fervently hope to achieve. At the same time, most of these countries are counting on the United States for support as they navigate this period of instability, for security cooperation, for economic partnerships, and for a leg up in the 21st century. Thank you. General Allen. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, esteemed members of the committee, thank you for providing me this opportunity uh, to update you today on the progress of the Global Coalition to Counter ISIL. And I'll refer to it uh, ISIL and DASH, which is the Arabic acronym as we go through the day. I'm honored to appear uh, alongside today one of the premier diplomats of our time, uh, Ambassador and Assistant Secretary Ann Patterson. As the committee knows, the challenges in the region are great and I returned to Washington on Friday from consultation with our Gulf partners uh, and on the heels of a trip to Amman, Baghdad, and Erbil, where I met with the most senior leadership for wide-ranging discussions on the counter-ISIL strategy. This, in turn, follows immediately on the heels of the UN General Assembly, where President Obama convened a meeting of the counter-ISIL coalition and other key international leaders and groups engaged in countering violent extremism. It's been a busy time, and I might add that at the UN General Assembly, three other nations announced their membership and commitment to the counter-ISIL coalition, Tunisia, Nigeria, and Malaysia. As I appear before this distinguished committee today, it's important to take stock of the dire situation that was unfolding a year ago. ISIL had advanced unimpeded into Iraq. U.S. government personnel in Erbil and Baghdad were under severe threat, and ISIL laid siege to the Sinjar Mountain, where they intended to annihilate the Yazidi population. Mosul had fallen, Tikrit had fallen, and we witnessed atrocities unparalleled uh, in our experience. A year later, the coalition has applied significant pressure on this group, hitting ISIL with more than 7,500 airstrikes, nearly 6,000 of which the United States has conducted, and taking out, as the Pentagon announced last week, just as a measure of the effect, 70 senior and mid-level ISIL leaders from May, roughly two every other day. With 18 coalition members having trained more than 14,000 Iraqi and Peshmerga soldiers to date, we've denied ISIL freedom to operate in over 30% of the populated territory in Iraq held just last August. And the iconic city of Tikrit has been liberated and 75% of the population has returned. ISIL has been almost completely pushed back from Beji, where Iraqi Air Force uh, aircraft flying U.S.-supplied F-16s have provided close air support to operations on the ground. And four columns of Iraqi troops are closing in on Ramadi, the province, the capital of the Al-Anbar province, which we anticipate in the coming months will be the next liberated city. As this coalition knows, the situation in Syria is no less challenging as Ambassador Patterson has just mentioned, and the Russian presence has further complicated matters for, uh, completely, uh, which uh, Ambassador Patterson will also address with us in the questions and answers. The United States continues to support ground forces in northern Syria to take back territory, and we now have cut off ISIL from all but 68 miles of the 600-mile border with Turkey, and today some of those forces are within 30 miles of ISIL's nerve center, if you will, its capital, Raqqa. But beyond the military aspects of the campaign that will inevitably receive the most attention, uh, we must not forget the pressure that we exert uh, against this group along other mutually supporting lines of effort. 
While we've taken back ISIL's primary border crossing from foreign terrorist fighters traveling between Turkey and Syria, we must stress that the Turkish border is the last line of defense in combating this phenomenon. As I've already mentioned, we're working with Turkey and local partners to clear ISIL from the final 68 miles of the border and prevent the further infiltration of foreign fighters, though the Russian incursion into Syria will likely make this more complex. We need all nations working together at each link in the chain of the movement of foreign fighters from the point of radicalization to the point of violence and to the point of return and rehabilitation. You'll also recall earlier this year in May, our armed forces conducted a special operations raid on ISIL's finance, oil, and antiquities, Emir Abu Sayyaf. We took from the raid seven terabytes of information, hard drives, thumb drives, DVDs, CDs, and paper, and the exploitation of that, inf that information and material is giving us important insights into the organization of ISIL and its economic portfolio. And as ISIL continues to brutalize and extort its population for cash, the coalition is coordinating efforts to stabilize areas liberated from ISIL's grasp. Several nations, including the United States with the support of Congress, have made sizable contributions to a fund for immediate stabilization in Iraq, which we created with the UN Development Program. This multinational fund, uh, multilaterally supported, has enabled Iraq, uh, Iraqi authorities to respond quickly to urgent needs requiring Iraqis uh, to reestablish critical uh, and essential services, such as water, electricity, and medical services. The ravaged communities ISIL leaves in its wake bear witness to ISIL's true nature, one we are actively working with coalition partners to expose, ensuring that an Arab face and a Muslim voice is our messaging strategy. Just one example, the State Department's Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications have managed a multimedia campaign of testimonies from ISIL defectors, generating some 900 news articles and reaching an estimated population and an audience of 90 million. To that end, we as a people must never, ever, accept that organizations like ISIL can become the new normal. We must never lose our moral outrage at what we have seen this organization do and is doing every day. Taking the fight to ISIL requires that we be flexible and patient in our efforts. It also requires close coordination with this committee and our colleagues in the Congress so that we can constantly evaluate our tactics and strategy and that we're resourcing them appropriately. I want to thank you, Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin, for this opportunity to continue this process of coordination and consultation. And as I end this term, I wanted to tell you, sir, I enlisted in the service when I was 17, and I spent my adult life in the military. But I've spent the last year working closely with the State Department. And I want to thank this committee for the support that it has given to the State Department, the Foreign Service, and the magnificent professionals in that organization. And when I thank Americans, or when I thank those who serve today, I call on Americans to not just thank our men and women in uniform. They should be thanking our diplomats and our employees of the State Department as well, sir. Thank you for that support. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll, I think I'll start with Secretary Patterson. And, you know, we've, uh, with especially what happened with the Iran nuclear agreement, there's been a renewed effort to try to understand what our Middle East uh, policy is and for Congress to play a role in that. I think the administration uh, is attempting to do the same uh, right now. And I, as I look at Libya, where we uh, basically uh, went in, uh, for the short term and left a country uh, ungoverned, uh, still ungoverned in many ways. As I look at Egypt, where we had uh, folks that were trying to cause the country to become uh, not a secular country, but one that was very focused on 
on uh, religious ideology, and so someone comes in to, to change that, and then all of a sudden we're not really helping them or holding back support because uh, we don't like the way they did it because of human rights issues. In Iraq, we had, in 2011, a check-the-box mentality. We're, we're done with Iraq and over, and obviously we're back in, uh, uh, in a different way now in Syria. Uh, our policy has been Assad must go, and yet Assad is there, and we really haven't done much to uh, cause Assad to go. Um, we had a certainly extended uh, testimony yesterday in Yemen. Uh, we're for the folks who are supporting the government, but not really for them. Uh, in Iran, uh, obviously, we've just totally turned the tables relative to our relationship there, and obviously uh, they're going to be at the table on Friday if they accept. Uh, in Israel, it's hard to... Yeah, somebody's been a longtime friend. It's hard to tell whether the administration, their friend or foe at present. And I just wonder if you might lay out for us what what the sort of the Middle East vision has been for the administration, and if that has changed in recent times because of circumstances, what it is today. Because it's really hard as you look at all the pieces to to understand if there is a congruent Middle East policy and something that uh, we might learn from the administration today, at least what that is. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, obviously, as I said, it's a deeply troubled and deeply conflicted uh, region, but I do think that we have certain overriding principles in the region, and the first is our counterterrorism policy. Uh, that's obviously been a challenge, an increasing challenge in Libya and other places in the region, and Yemen as well. I would say that's our first priority. The second is uh, human rights and democracy and economic growth, and we have tried to promote those. I think they're very much under the radar, particularly some of our economic policies at this time, to promote entrepreneurship, to promote employment, to try and get some of, at some of these enormous uh, youth bulge issues that are destabilizing the, the, the region. So that's also uh, a key element of our policy. And then finally, I think uh, I would be the first to admit, Mr. Chairman, that we've been absolutely absorbed by the crises in the region, such as uh, ISIL in Syria and in Libya, and we have been unable in many respects to implement uh, successfully these longer-term strategies and focus on the underlying uh, difficulties in the region. Let me point out, however, that I think we've made uh, very considerable progress in some parts of North Africa. I think relations with our Gulf allies uh, have improved quite dramatically uh, due to the work on the Camp David Summit and our security guarantees and trying to reassure them of our uh, permanent commitment uh, to their security. So I think there are some positive elements uh, that we can point to in our policy. But again, I would be the first to admit that we have been uh, uh, quite absorbed by crisis management during this administration. Last, uh, uh, you know, my sense is that three years ago, maybe, uh, the administration had one view of the Middle East, and today that's evolved to a degree. Have there been shifts, if you will, that, uh, that might enlighten us relative to how the administration is looking at the region just because of these crises that you're talking about? <laughs> Uh, Mr. Chairman, I think if I'd been here three years ago and I was in Egypt three years ago, I think there was a, there was a perhaps overly optimistic uh, uh, impression that we could focus on democracy promotion and economic growth in places like Egypt and North Africa and even in the Levant. That has proved to be exceedingly difficult. 
So uh, over the past three years, our focus has, has really changed to the counterterrorism initiative, which was always uh, a high priority, and to and essentially to develop what General Allen is, is carrying out, which is a coalition to fight ISIL yeah. and other terrorists in the region. We shouldn't forget about the persistent presence of al-Qaeda in Yemen. Yeah. So I would say that we've, we have, we have uh, evolved. General Allen, uh, this Friday there's a, a meeting that I know Secretary Kerry seemed very optimistic about yesterday in, in our closed briefing, and it's hard to square for me anyway. It's hard to square uh, sort of the, the facts on the ground with the potential for uh, uh, some grand diplomatic solution on Friday. When you see what Russia's efforts, it seems, have been more towards the, the free Syrian moderate groups than they have towards ISIS. You've got Iran on the ground there working with them. I'm wondering if you uh, have any thoughts about, from your perspective, since your military background is so extensive and so respected, uh, as you look at the facts on the ground today, where do you see a diplomatic solution going in Syria that uh, is, is reconcilable and ends up being something that uh, represents U.S. national interest. Well, Chairman, as, as you, uh, as we have said before in our conversations and, and I've, uh, I've attempted to portray, this is one of the most complex situations that I, I have seen in my career. The ground in Syria uh, is rife with uh, conflict in a number of different levels and, and uh, in a number of different directions. Uh, much, of course, of what we see in Syria, if not Virtually all of what we see in Syria is a direct result of uh, the Assad regime, uh, a direct result of uh, during the spring of 2011 when legitimate voices of the Syrian people called for reform. Rather than to listen to those voices and perhaps embrace the opportunity for reform, he turned on them. Uh, and that created the situation that we see today, uh, which is that large segments of the population, which we might call moderate Syrian, are seeking to defend themselves. Uh, elements of the population have gravitated towards Al-Qaeda, so Al-Qaeda has put down roots in the country in a, in a very serious way, uh, Jabal al-Nusra, uh, and that ISIL uh, found itself uh, free to incubate, if you will, to create the organization that it has today, which nearly pushed Syria over the edge and nearly pushed Iraq over the edge. So we have a very complex uh, environment on the ground, uh, which uh, until just recently, uh, last several months, I, I didn't see that we had many options, frankly, uh, in terms of being able to influence the ground. And in the aftermath of a couple of things, which is uh, our work with uh, Syrian elements uh, that we could, in fact, work with, uh, having taken back much of the Syrian-Turkish border, that has given us options both in terms of closing off that border but having access to Syrian partners with whom we can deal. Uh, as well, Turkey is now in, in this game in a way that we had not seen just months ago. And that, I think, has given us a platform regionally to have options. Uh, and so at this particular juncture, uh, I, I, we're trying to develop the situation, which is to contain, ultimately, degrade and defeat Daesh, which is a, a strategy in and of itself. We have a policy objective to seek to reduce the, uh, the violence uh, in the region, and to uh, undertake some kind of a political transformation, uh, transition away from Assad. And the connective tissue, we hope, between the two of those, the strategy on the one hand and ultimately the policy objective on the other, 
is to do what we can to support the, the Syrian elements within the population that can both de defeat Daesh and be credible voices in the political transition. So I think Secretary Kerry is trying to leverage that opportunity. Uh, I think the Russians have made that, have both given us opportunity and a challenge in that regard, and I'm not giving the Russians any credit uh, for what they've done. Uh, but what I'm, uh, the point I'm trying to make is that the Russians are gonna find themselves, I think, in a relatively near future, in a very difficult situation. Uh, it's gonna be very difficult for them to disengage or ultimately to uh, justify their presence uh, in Syria, uh, and for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and I can be more uh, expansive on that if you like, but uh, I don't think Assad is in a particularly strong place. I think the Russians intervened because Assad was teetering on the edge. Uh, I think the Russians are attempting to assist him to be stable and perhaps to protect and recover the Alawi heartland. Uh, and we'd hoped that the Russians would help us to reduce the violence uh, in Syria. Uh, but I think what they're discovering relatively quickly is that if they're not part of the political transition, then they're going to be, for a long term, they're going to be part of the problem. And that problem is going to come home to roost for them in, in ways that uh, will be, make it very difficult. So it's a complex uh, situation uh, at various levels. And I think what Secretary Kerry is uh, seeking to do is to leverage any potential opportunity uh, that we have right now to begin the conversation that can put in place a process of political transition. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you again very much, both of you, for your, for your testimony. First, uh, Secretary Patterson, I just want to underscore one point you made with a comment, and that is that one of our objectives is good governance and human rights issues. And as we start to talk about a negotiated settlement in Syria, if President Assad is not held accountable for his war crimes, it will be a clear message that we're going to see this scene play out again somewhere else in that region. And I just urge you uh, that the way that the United States must provide leadership is to make it clear that uh, we understand Syria's future will be without Assad. That's been a clear message that we have made. But it's also important that President Assad be held accountable uh, for the atrocities that he has committed to his own people. You said in your testimony, we believe Russia's decision to intervene militarily in Syria is a losing bet. They know full well that there is no military solution in this conflict. General Allen, you have said the same basically the same message that we have to move towards a diplomatic and in Russia's case, uh, they clearly have intervened militarily to bolster the Assad regime. Uh, all the information that we've seen is that the interest in ISIL is secondary at best and that their primary interest is to deal with the stability of the Assad regime, which is contrary to a lot of our military uh, interest in that region. So uh, Secretary Carter indicated yesterday that, uh, in the, before the, uh, the uh, Armed Services, Senate Armed Services Committee that changes to the U.S. strategy are underway. General Allen, can you share with us how our military strategies in the region are being reevaluated, recognizing that there is no military solution here, we need to get an, a diplomatic solution how do we readjust our military strategy in order to reach that objective? I would say a, a couple of things. Uh, first, we, we see Daesh as a regional issue. Uh, we try not to uh, view Daesh as a segment that's in Iraq and a segment that is in uh, Syria. 
Uh, and as is the case uh, in an environment where we had to deal with Daesh, in my, my points a moment ago, I, I talked about how far we've come in a year, where Daesh was, for all intents and purposes, uh, splintering uh, Iraq in an irreconcilable way, had already done enormous damage to Syria. We really took them on head on, for all intents and purposes. And the intent of the first year of this uh, coalition and our operations was to grind them to a halt, stop their momentum, and set the conditions ultimately to begin the process of containing, degrading, and defeating them. And that's really what's been underway for, for the first year. And I think what Secretary uh, Carter is referring to uh, is that we find ourselves now in a position uh, where we're able to bring pressure to bear on Daesh, it, it, if you will, around its periphery. Uh, so, for example, the bilateral agreement that we have uh, entered into with the Turks to uh, facilitate the closure of the border, the final 98 kilometers of the border, uh, to empower uh, Syrian opposition elements to drive on and to pressure Raqqa, uh, to empower Syrian uh, elements to push south from Hasaka to, to pressure other Daesh areas uh, in Iraq uh, to see that the Peshmerga, who have been so effective, uh, continue to the process of pushing out and uh, interdicting key lines of communications between Mosul and Raqqa to recover Beji, to pressure and recover Ramadi. All of those activities is what we're seeking to accomplish simultaneously. But is it more complicated today because of Russia's military escalation in Syria? Not really. Not really. The Russians are operating primarily in the northwest of Syria uh, and along the spine uh, of Syria, which is well west of most of Daesh. We would have been, I think, happy if the Russians had truly joined us in what they said they were going to do, which was uh, to deal with Daesh. But the vast majority of the targets that they're attacking uh, and the vast majority of the assistance that they're providing uh, is to stabilize the regime and to attack other elements of the Syrian population besides Daesh. Uh, and that would have been helpful, but, but it's, that's not what's happening. And so the, so the co- so In regards to the anti-ISIL campaign, Russia's presence has not been a major problem. In regards to dealing with the underlying problem in Syria, the fact that they are so active in fighting the opposition I assume, Secretary Patterson, that does present a challenge for us. Yes, yes, uh, Senator Cardin, but it, but it may also present an opportunity, and that's what the Secretary is trying to leverage. I think it's important to remember that Russia went into Syria because Assad was weak uh, and under very considerable pressure from, from a variety of directions. And uh, I think they'll soon find out that the entire Sunni world is against them. Uh, we have heard from many of our Gulf partners that in terms of uh, jihadis and extremists, they haven't seen anything yet because they'll be drawn into Syria in even greater numbers to fight against the Russians. And of course, the Russians have their own problems with domestic extremism and on their border. So they may find out that this is not such a good deal as they had anticipated. Secretary uh, Patterson, could, could you share with us um, Switching gears to Iran for one moment, in the post-Iran deal environment, can you share with us what steps are being taken to deal with the fact that Iran is moving, as I think, more promptly than we had anticipated in order to obtain sanction relief? We know that they participate and sponsor terrorist activities. 
what steps are being taken to trace Iran's ability, which will be in, in, enhanced by sanction relief, uh, to be able to counter their nefarious act activities, uh, working with our partners uh, to make it clear that we won't tolerate that type of activity? Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Um, uh, Chairman Dempsey testified in front of this committee some months back, and what he said was, I thought, very well put, which was along the lines of the nuclear agreement is just one of the elements, or the nuclear capacity, one of the elements that we're, that we have great concerns about. Uh, the first step we've taken, uh, Senator Cardin, is to work very closely with Israel and with our GCC allies to help them combat this Iranian threat. And we're under no illusions about what Iran is doing in the region. And in fact, some of their, their activities have stepped up uh, in recent months. But we're working with our GCC colleagues on issues like protection from cyber incursions. We're working with them on an anti-ballistic missile defense system. Uh, we're working with them on things like special forces training. We have a very robust, intelligent sharing um, effort uh, with our GCC allies and, and, and in fact, have helped them uh, uh, counter some Iranian terrorism, extremist terrorism on their soil. So we have a lot of activities underway. We have a very specific intelligence focus. We, of course, have our large military presence in the, in the uh, uh, Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Aden. Uh, so we are, we're very mindful of Iranian adventurism in this region. On the financial side, uh, we've continued to designate, uh, I think we've designated 44 uh, uh, designations since this uh, was underway. So I think we're taking steps. And, to and will we be monitoring their activities, considering sanction relief will give them an opportunity perhaps to help their own people, but also to increase their terrorist activities and sponsor Very terrorism. much so, and, and, and we think when the money is released, uh, the Iranian economy is simply in shambles. Uh, and there'll be very great demand, I think, to provide for their own people and to rebuild energy infrastructure and other public services. But we're very mindful that uh, some of this money could be directed at their activities, for instance, in Yemen or in Bahrain, and we'll be watching that closely. Prepared to take action, I see. Very much so, sir. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Secretary Patterson, thank you for your service. Uh, General Allen, thank you for yours. Um, prepared to take action. There's a pretty interesting article written by Brett Stevens in the Wall Street Journal yesterday uh, talking about uh, Iran violations of uh, UN Resolution 2231 and the new, de new demands uh, made by uh, Supreme Leader Kamani. Uh, I guess I'd like to get your reaction to that. The, you know, the, the test firing of the new generation ballistic missile called the EMOD. Um, Mr. Kamani's demands, uh, as, as he wrote, uh, were, were best described by Yigal Karman and Aliette Savian in the Middle East Media Research Institute. Demand one, the U.S. and Europe must completely lift rather than temporarily suspend economic sanctions. Demand two, sanctions against Iran for its support of terrorism and its human rights abuses must also go. Uh, Mr. Kamani is uh, changing the timetable for Iran to ship out its enriched uranium and must modify its plutonium reactor in Iraq, changing the timetable on that. And he also reiterates his call for a huge R&D effort so that Iran will have at least 190,000 centrifuges when the nuclear deal expires. Uh, Secretary Patterson, you said that the administration is under no illusions 
about what Iran's doing. It seems like that whole agreement, I think you're under an illusion, really delude yourself in terms of what uh, Iran is really going to be planning on doing here. Uh, they've been emboldened by this agreement. I, I'm not seeing any kind of modification to the positive of their behavior. I, I see it to the negative. Uh, General Soleimani, days after the agreement was reached, flying to Moscow. Then we see Iran and now Russia cooperating in Syria. I, I, by the way, I, I don't see them wanting to disengage from Syria. I think they want to be embedded. So, I mean, how are we going to act? So, so Senator, Senator Johnson, let, let me try and answer this question about Iran. We know that there are enormous tensions within, within the Iranian government. From Rouhani, who was elected, I won't exactly say a reformist agenda, but at least he realizes that the Iranian people have to see some benefits. Uh, and again, the economy was in an absolute shambles. They had to respond. Sky-high inflation rates, a contraction of 25% in the past few years. So there was enormous incentive uh, to try and restore the economy. And then there are the, the old line, the hardliners uh, from 1970, uh, who really haven't evolved since 1979. So, so there's enormous attention in their in their body politic, and that we'll see uh, playing But, but again, let me talk about address their be, the actual behavior that we're, me, we're witnessing. Me, we, we are about to see tens of billions of dollars let, being let interjected into the, into the economy, possibly, but in the military of our self-proclaimed enemy. How is that going to turn out let, well? Let me and what's going to be the reaction? Let me give you one example, and that's the ballistic missile. And I, I read Mr. Stevens' article. I actually read Mr. Stevens a lot. but. Uh, so th we think that it's entirely possible that this is a violation of the UN resolution that you mentioned. And, and how this is handled is we've gone to the Security Council, we've asked for an appointment of a group of experts, this is the procedure, the experts will report back to the Security Council and then we will decide what action to and take. And we will, we will continue to lift the sanctions, we will allow tens of billions of dollars to be injected into Senator, the military Johnson, of our self-proclaimed enemy, I, I correct? Know you, I know are, we, are we going to stop that in any way, shape, I know or you've form? Been, well, there's a snapback. We can stop this sanctions relief at any time. There's will we? The question is, will we? Depending on what happens, of course, if they're in violation, but this is the, let me also say about the ballistic missile defense. Here's where we're trying to work with our allies. We have, we have worked with the GCC countries very intensely in the past few weeks to develop a region-wise ballistic missile defense system. So we are taking steps with Iran, but we're also taking steps so our allies can better counter these, uh, these aggressive steps by Iran. So we're looking at an arms buildup in the Middle East as a result of the Iranian deal. This is what you're basically describing here. Are, are, is the administration happy with the results? Is the administration happy with what Iran's actions are following the Iranian agreement? Senator Johnson, the administration is under no illusions, nor is anyone else. It, it just seems, it seems as though they are. Okay. Uh, we, we, were, we were told yesterday that Iran actually wants a secular Syria. Do you agree with that? Do you think Iran wants a secular Syria? Do you, do you believe that's true? That Iran's looking for a secular Syria? Is that, their, is that why they're involved in Syria? Do you I, I don't they know whether they're looking for a secular Syria or religious Syria. Yeah, what they're looking for is a Syria that protects their interest and particularly their access to Hezbollah. Yeah. General Allen, again, appreciate your service. I, I realize that as, as a military man, you're, you have certainly been constrained. Um, it is complex. I've been told by a number of people, you know, military experts, I'm not one, that although, although difficult, and obviously with, with sacrifice, 
uh, if we were really, if we were really willing to bring everything we can to, could, could bring to bear against uh, ISIL or Daesh, we could defeat them militarily re relatively easily. But again, we, we've been constrained by the fact that uh, we certainly won't put boots on the ground. We haven't uh, really got a coalition that's really putting the type of military assets uh, uh, on, you know, to, to bear and against uh, ISIL. What would it take? I mean, is that true? I mean, is what I'm hearing false? I mean, is this, do, do we have to be patient? Or is it, are, do we have to be patient because we're not willing to bring the assets to bear to actually defeat them sooner rather than later? Um, to be very clear, of course, uh, it is the role of the chairman and the secretary to bring these kinds of recommendations to the president. Now, so that's out. Let me make a couple of points. The United States has unparalleled military power in the world today. It's enormously effective. Our capacity to generate and to deploy that military power is uh, unquestioned uh, and irresistible if we chose to do that. In dealing with this, with this crisis, you have to ask yourself one of two questions. The first is to do it yourself or to empower the indigenous forces to do it for themselves. The result of the first is that you find yourself with large numbers of your forces and large numbers of casualties and, and some extended period of time on the ground in an area that's already destabilized and that with the very like, great likelihood that the kinds of antibodies that'll be formed against the United States there will make it very difficult, if not impossible, for us to pull out in any short period of time. The alternative, though, is to empower the indigenous forces, which is the, the course that we have taken. It's less satisfying up front because we haven't been able to deliver the the massive capacity of the American uh, military machine against this enemy. And we'd love to crush these folks. But please let me finish, Senator. So in doing that, what we're seeking to do is to build the capacity of those indigenous forces, whether they're Iraqi security forces or they're the tribes or there are partners on the ground in Syria in whatever way possible, so that when the solution is ultimately achieved, it has been achieved by the people that have to live with it. And that is a very effective way of doing it as well. The first gets you gets you the outcome that you look for in a relatively quick process. But the, the tail end of that is a very difficult outcome. The other takes longer to, to gain momentum and ultimately to achieve your objectives. But when you've achieved your objectives, it is the people themselves who have achieved that objective. And that's what we seek to accomplish in this case. Just very quickly, what about the middle ground, assembling a coalition like we did with the first Gulf War, where, yeah, the US provided about 2 thirds of the troop strength, about half a million soldiers. but. Coalition partners, about 250,000. Coalition partners paid for 85% of their effort. That, that was a true coalition that was obviously very effective. Uh, we're really not assembling that type of coalition. If we did, just a real quick question, how quickly with these, and how many, and what would the troop level be? What, what, would, what would we need to actually defeat ISIS sooner rather than later? Well, I, I, I will not speculate on the troop to task requirement there. I think we can simply assume that if the coalition sought to put together the kinds of combat power that was put together for Desert Storm, the outcome would be different than it is today. Uh, but the, the result of the liberation of Kuwait was that we were able to hand Kuwait right back to the Kuwaiti people who then ultimately governed it. We don't have that kind of a partnership on the ground in Syria and we're desperately attempting to hold on and to develop the capacity of the government uh, in Iraq so that it in the end is able to govern uh, a territorially restored and a sovereign Iraq. So we're, we're seeking uh, an outcome of two different environments, two different operational environments. A and the, the one coalition worked very well for that moment and President Bush was, was wise and his administration put that together very well. 
This is a different environment, an environment where when we're done, we want the, the solution to this crisis to have been handled and ultimately solved by the people that have got to deal with it to begin with. Thanks, Senator Thank you. Before I move to Senator Menendez, um, on UN Security Council Resolution 1929 that Iran definitely just violated, I don't think there's any question about that, we know that Russia is going to block any action being taken. I know you're going through the steps that are necessary, but we know they're going to block. And I think what the vast majority of people on the committee want to know is knowing that we know the outcome before it starts, that there won't be sanctions, there won't be penalties put against Iran because Iran, Russia will uh, block them. We want to know unilaterally what the United States is going to do because we know functionally nothing is going to happen at the UN. I think that's the question we yeah, all have. And, and I think you'll have another letter coming from the vast majority of us soon wanting you to spell that out. So well, I think there was a little bit of a... Confusion there. Uh, that's right. Okay, sir. Yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, we know that Russia is going to block this. So the real question is, center is unilateral sanctions. That's right. And what we'll do. And, and there isn't a snapback around this particular issue. No, no, but issue. we'll go that through the process at the UN Security Council and the panel of experts uh, and then decide what we're going to do all of which we know will lead to a dead end, and therefore we're going to have to take unilateral action, or we're going to begin the process by letting Iran violate on the front end the very agreement that we just negotiated. I mean, that's kind of where we are. We know that, and so we'd like something a little more clear coming from the administration. Se uh, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, let me thank both of you for your service to our country. I truly appreciate it. And I want my questions to be viewed with the full respect that I have for both of you, but trying to pierce the veil of optimism and understand where that optimism flows from, because both of your testimonies were pretty optimistic. Uh, I, I, I would like, uh, uh, Madam Secretary, for you to explain to me not where supposedly the confluence of Russia and Iran's uh, interests are with us in Syria, but where they diverge. Senator Menendez, they diverge in all sorts of ways. Uh, Give me some examples. The Iranian presence there, of course, is to, as I uh, believe I mentioned, is to ensure a role, a continuing role for Hezbollah in the region. Uh, that's obviously a high priority. Uh, the Russians are there uh, not only to shore up Assad, but also to exert regional influence and to preserve their naval base at Tartus. Uh, so those are two obvious ones in which they differ. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm trying to understand, and I believe there are more that they diverge on because when I listen to the administration, I hear the aspirational goals of the convergence of Russia and Iran's interest in Syria that somehow make them potential partners. And it seems to me that if what Russia wants, for example, is the permanency of their base, uh, their naval base there, and influence, I don't know about the region, because that's, a ch that's one of my concerns here, what we are allowing after 45 years of Democratic and Republican administrations seeking to close the door on Russia's sphere of influence in the Middle East, it seems to me like we're swinging it wide open. And that's a concern. And so if Russia just wants its base and influence in Syria, 
That's something that I'm sure we would have negotiated without having to go into the depths of the crisis we have. If Iran truly wants a secular Syria, which I find incredible to believe, uh, then that's something we could have negotiated uh, for some time. We didn't even need a nuclear accord for that. So I find it difficult to understand how Iran and Russia are going to end up with the same end goals that we have uh, at the end of the day, which is a Assad's got to go at some point, and after, now it's after a transition. There has we want a unified country. We want a country uh, that uh, is uh, uh, all people can live in. Uh, so, how does that reconcile? with Russia wanting greater influence in the Middle East, uh, which is the message he sends when he has Assad visit him in Russia. That message is, you, you have to come through me at the end of the day to the region. And so all of a sudden we see regional partners flocking to have conversations with Russia, whereas basically their conversations were largely with us and our partners in this coalition. So. I, I think we are opening the door to an influence that is not going to serve as well. Senator Menendez, I, I respectfully think the prospects for Russian influence in the region are exaggerated. Uh, our allies in the Gulf, for instance, uh, and a number of them have paid visits to Moscow recently, um, live pretty securely, very securely, under a large U.S. defense umbrella that protects them from Iran and from other threats. Uh, they know, because they're not stupid, that the Russians cannot replicate that. Uh, they know that the Russians may supply some military equipment, but they also know that the partner of choice uh, for their military development is the United States. So while, yes, we see them pay visits to, to Moscow, I, I do think that the chances for Russian penetration of the area uh, are, are frankly exaggerated. Okay, so you don't have that concern. What, why did we have to, if all Russia wants and all Iran wants is the same end goals as we want, why have we had to have thousands of people die, millions displaced, uh, and at the end of the day we could have negotiated the same opportunity that we are now talking about negotiating with these two countries? Senator Menendez, I don't think we ever said that we had the same goals. I think what we said is there could be a congruence of interests that could well, in fact, be temporary. Okay. That would but the, at the end of the day, if your interests uh, ultimately don't end up in the same goals, how does the end game end up being the one that you want to see? Because You're inviting these two countries to engage with you because uh, at the end of the day, I would have thought that the end result of what we want is going to be shared by these two countries. If not, why would you ask them to be involved if the end goal is not going to be achieved with them? Well, the, from a practical matter, Senator, they're there on the ground, so they have to be involved in the process. And I think, of course, Okay, so before they were on the ground, when Russia now got engaged, and by the way, you said that Iran is going to need all this money for domestic purposes, but Iran has upped its participation in Syria, even in the midst of the economic difficulties it faced, which is 
is, is counter to the argument that when they have flush with money, that they're going to use that all domestically, because when they're lacking money, they are still engaged in upping the ante as they are with Hezbollah and their participation inside of Syria. Senator Menendez, the, the Iranian and Russian involvement in Syria is nothing new. Uh, what we've seen is, so, so this is, this is uh, yes, a question of degree and a question of acceleration, but it's certainly nothing new. They've, they've both been there for years, and they've been active for years. And it's not a question that our, that our interests coincide across the board. It's, an inter it's a question, and this is what Secretary Kerry is trying to do, is to find an opening that he can leverage, and not just with the Russians and the Iranians. Remember the Saudis and the Turks and a wide range of Europeans who are being uh, decimated, who are being uh, very seriously affected by this refugee crisis, are also involved in this process and trying to find an opening through which he can move a diplomatic solution. Well, the purpose of leverage is to come to the ultimate goal that you have. And you said to me that while they may have interests, at the end of the day, they don't share our ultimate goal. So I find it difficult how we get to the ultimate goal of what we want to see in Syria with partners who don't share our ultimate goal, who may have interests, but at the end of the day, their interests may not be sufficient to ultimately be assuaged or taken care of and then still have our ultimate goal. I, I don't get it, but let me just make one comment because my time is up and I want to be courteous to my colleagues. On the question of Iran's ballistic missile tests, this is a critical test of the administration's willingness to challenge Iran when it violates international norm. And if it fails to do so, it will send Iran a message that the international agreement that they sign can also be challenged and violated with impunity. And I don't see, I don't see the difference because you have Security Council resolutions that call for Iran not to have had the missile test that it did. It freely did it, blatantly did it, and it's, it seems to me that Iran's view is that the expectations or aspirations of the United States to make it a partner will ultimately overlook their violations. And if that is the case, we are in an incredibly dangerous period. So I hope that regardless of what happens at the UN, which I agree with the chairman, will be a dead end, that we are poised to act by ourselves and hopefully in concert with other countries who may feel the same as we do in actions that send a very clear message to Iran, because otherwise the nuclear agreement uh, is bound uh, to be broken time and time again. Thank you. Senator Flight. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Um, I'd like your candid assessment, uh, and I'm not making a value judgment on the direction it seems that we're going. I'm not sure that we have all that many options, but we're talking now of a transition uh, in Syria, uh, which would be started with uh, Assad in place, but would not end with Assad in, in his place. How realistic is that, uh, is that assumption that we, can, that we can back a transition like that and assume that he will begin the process but not end the process? Senator, Senator Flake, I think uh, yesterday the Secretary said that it would be extraordinarily difficult, this process, and we've been trying to 
do a version of this, uh, and many of the elements in the transition process were laid out in this Geneva Accord uh, several years back. Uh, but I think there's certainly renewed impetus to, to undertake this again with the Russian involvement, uh, with the refugee crisis in Europe. Sure, I think it'll be very hard. Uh, but Assad cannot remain in place because he's fundamentally destabilizing, and we won't be able to effectively combat ISIL uh, if Assad remains in power. But it's going to be hard, of course. General Allen, do you have any thoughts there? Uh, I agree with the Assistant Secretary. I, I think this is going to be difficult, uh, but I think beginning the process of the conversation is is worth the effort, frankly. Uh, Assistant Secretary Patterson, uh, give some sense of where the EU is and how much more motivated perhaps they are now uh, after the refugee crisis uh, has reached its, its kind of peak, hopefully its peak. Um, how much more motivated are they to help uh, seek a solution with uh, our partners there? Well, they seem, they seem very focused on it, uh, shall I say. And, and uh, yesterday there was a meeting in Paris that Tony Blinken attended, and then there was a, uh, this meeting in Vienna that will involve not only the EU, uh, but also the uh, major European powers. So, so I think the refugee crisis, which has potentially very disruptive effects for Europe. I think we've seen a renewed interest on their part. General Allen? They're very focused on it, Senator. And I, I think that the uh, concerns that they have, both in terms of uh, the effect on their societies, their border control, all of those things, I believe, has focused them very uh, significantly on this, which is not just an issue for Europe, but it's also an issue of their renewed uh, willingness to work with us uh, within the coalition as well. Do they have any demands that we don't have? Are they entering in this thing with the same? Uh, obviously, they, they understand the, the difficulties, as you put it, uh, um, of starting this process of, of diplomacy here. But uh, are, are they comfortable with what seems to be the framework, given the reporting that we've seen, that we would be comfortable with a, a transition period that would start with Assad uh, remaining in power? Are our European partners comfortable with that? Well, it's difficult to make a generalization for all our European partners, but I believe that the process that Secretary Kerry seeks to uh, undertake will, will take us through the modalities for that transition. And there'll be various voices that will uh, be raised in that process as to whether he has to go immediately or goes during the transition or is gone by the end. That, that will be worked out as a modality in the process, but, but I, I strongly believe that our European partners, whether in the coalition or just the EU as, as an entity, are keenly interested uh, in this political process. We, we are clear that this is not going to be resolved in a military sense in Syria, and if this is an opportunity, if this is the moment when that conversation can begin to bring all of the relevant external players to the table to begin that conversation, this is an opportunity that we should seize. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to our uh, witnesses. Um, since the beginning of the war on ISIL in August of uh, 2014, we've seen United States troop deployment levels increase. Uh, we've seen deaths of U.S. citizens, first the execution of American hostages after the bombing began in August of 2014, then the death of American servicemen who were deployed in the area of not combat-related deaths, and then sadly the death of Mass Sergeant Wheeler uh, last week. 
we've seen ISIL growing into more countries, originally Iraq and Syria, but now ISIL presence and claimed presence in Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, um, and then we've just deployed troops to Cameroon to counter Boko Haram, which has claimed an alliance with ISIL. We've seen the acceleration of the worst refugee crisis since World War II with the uh, Syrian refugees fleeing Syria and camps in neighboring nations. We've seen inflamed violence between Turkey and the Kurdish populations in Turkey and northern Syria, and now we've seen the Russian military entrance in an accelerated way into the theater in Syria. We had testimony yesterday in both armed services and foreign relations hearings from Secretaries Kerry, Carter, and General Dunford, and while some of that was in classified setting, I'm gonna be delicate about the way I describe it, that the thrust of the testimony seemed to be, uh, as I listened to both sets of testimony, that we, were, we are about to, and it has been reported that we are considering, we're about to additionally escalate U.S. military uh, activity against ISIL and that that will have a cost uh, and that uh, will likely take some time. Um, would you agree that the stated mission that the U.S. has of defeating ISIL is one that is going to take some significant period of time? Uh, <clears throat> Senator Kane, I agree with that, uh, and we've said that all along. Uh, the, the, the countdown of issues that you have uh, you've presented us, uh, the witnesses, uh, are an accurate accounting, uh, and those are going to have to be addressed not just with regard to Daesh, but more broadly, uh, as the, the Assistant Secretary has, has sought to portray this morning, uh, in the context of regional stability and ultimately addressing some of those causal factors that create the instability that give rise ultimately to organizations like Al-Qaeda and Daesh. Because many, as you correctly point out, uh, the, the, the emergence of what we would call global ISIL, it's a euphemism, mm -hmm. but global ISIL, has been less about the spontaneous development of ISIL as an organization that we know in Iraq and Syria than it has been the potential for the creation of connectivity between existing groups uh, in various, various places, each of which emerged from the fabric of society there because of various causal factors. So the ability of Daesh to gather them together in a, in a network is something that we're obviously very attentive to right now with the idea of, of how we can both deal with the branches, deal with the network, while we continue the process of dealing with the platform, which is the core ISIL platform in Iraq and Syria. Well, I don't mean to undermine the fact that there have been some successful efforts that the U.S. has undertaken. I'm going to get to one of those in a second. Uh, I go through the litany just to show that, frankly, since August of 2014, the ISIL threat has been growing and mutating and spreading, and that means that the U.S. effort vis-a-vis -vis ISIL, which this Congress should oversee and, in my view, authorize, is going to also have to grow and spread, and it's likely to take some time. But let me move to an area where we've been successful, but even success has its challenges, and that is in our partnership with the Kurds. I was in uh, Erbil in July and was very impressed with the cooperation between the United States and the Peshmerga in military operations uh, in northern uh, Iraq. And then in Gaziantep, discussing uh, our operations there, we had some success in working with the Kurds in northern uh, Syria as well, but no success doesn't have the worm in the apple. The, the, there has been an inflamed tension between our NATO ally Turkey um, and the Kurds 
uh, right on that border um, and atrocities back and forth across the border. How do we propose to maintain the partnership with the Kurds in northern Syria that's been somewhat successful militarily while also maintaining the level of cooperation we need to with Turkey uh, to shut the border and do the other things that, uh, that they are doing to battle ISIL? That's uh, one of the most complex uh, challenges that we face right now. Uh, we uh, discovered the potential for the relationship with the, the YPG last year when, you'll recall, the Kobani was unfolding. Uh, and the many different defenders of that city were supported successfully. Uh, many defenders, it was not just Kurds, there were others uh, in that city as well. And in the aftermath of that, discovered that the, the Syrian opposition elements in that area, Kurds and others, uh, could in fact be empowered and advised uh, ultimately to deal with Daesh, to recover the border, and to seal the border from infiltration from Daesh from uh, Syria, uh, Turkey into Syria. Uh, at, at roughly the same time in July when we completed uh, the agreement with Turkey to open their air bases and to close the final 98 kilometers of the border, that's when the problem with the PKK lit off inside Turkey. Uh, and you're correct, Turkey is an old friend, it is a, it is a treasured NATO ally, uh, and the PKK went to work inside Turkey once again, and the Turks responded, and we uh, supported the Turks. PKK is a designated organization. Uh, and the Turks did, in fact, take steps to defend themselves, but we worked with the Turks in a very delicate uh, diplomatic process uh, for us to maintain the relationship with the the. PYD and the armed wing, the YPG, <coughs> south of the border, so long as there was no uh, aggression across that border one way or the other. And we worked very hard to try to uh, manage that. There's been some reporting uh, very recently that there might have been some. Uh, we're not entirely sure that's accurate, so we're watching it very closely because, because of the implications uh, in Ankara uh, and the potential tension that we have uh, with the Turks over this real opportunity to take advantage of the capacity of opposition elements in Syria that can in fact liberate large segments of the population and the region from Daesh. So we're gonna watch this very closely and it, it requires that we uh, acknowledge the very delicate diplomatic relation uh, that we have with Turkey over this issue. Um, and, and Turkey of course is attempting to defend itself uh, from the PKK, at the same time manage the border and our relationship with the YPG and I think we've worked well with them at this point. Just one last point, I would like to underline the point made by colleagues about the importance of U.S. action against Iran vis-a-vis -vis the missile test. I actually have a slightly different uh, diagnosis than my colleagues, but it's almost an identical prescription. I, I think that the missile test was less about threatening the United States as it was about the internal battle in Iranian politics. The Iranian, a uh, big chunk of the Iranian government hate, uh, love this deal, and a big chunk of the hardliners hate this deal. The, one of the chief negotiators of the deal was threatened on the floor of the Iranian parliament by a member of parliament saying, we will kill you for, for, for what you've done. Um, and that tension between the hardliners who hate the deal and the reformers who want to achieve the deal, I think that explains the missile test. I, I do think we need to take action immediately to show that we're not gonna be pushed around and that will be the test of our willingness to implement the deal. And we need to do it in a way that empowers the reformers who want the deal and, and further marginalizes the hardliners who oppose it. And this is especially important from a timing standpoint because of Iranian elections in early uh, 2016. So I agree that we need to take strong action. If I could, since you brought that up, I think one of the concerns that many had with the Iran deal 
is that it's not a country that controls its infrastructure in the same way that we do. And uh, Soleimani has... That, is, that assumes a fact and not an evidence, Your Honor. Yeah. But, but the point is, I, I think that probably you're right, but the fact is there's an incongruency there within the country that means that some factions would want to cheat and do some things as they did. And I agree the prescription is the same. We need to push back. I, I think that the administration could be frozen like they have been with Syria with decision memos, decision memos, decision memos, no action. I fear that's what's happening right now on this particular issue, and hopefully collectively we can push so that that doesn't become reality here soon. Mr. Chairman, let me, yeah. let me just point out, I think there is unanimity, I would think, on this committee uh, to the point of making sure that uh, Iran is held to the strictest compliance with all of its international agreements. Uh, it, it really does not involve whether we support or oppose the Iran agreement. We want to make sure that there is strict compliance uh, and the violation of the UN resolution, the clear violation of the UN resolution requires US action with our willing allies to make it clear that we will not tolerate that type of infringement, regardless of the reasons why the Iranians did it. And, and, and I, I would say regardless of where people were on the actual vote on the agreement, it is an agreement that is now in place, and I think all of us want to ensure that Iran does not get a nuclear weapon. So with that, Senator Isaacson. I want to associate myself with the remarks of the chairman and the ranking member both on the Iranian deal. Regardless of my vote or anybody else's vote, we have to be steadfast in shooting to it that they live up to their side of the bargain. If we don't, we're a paper tiger and there'll never be any good diplomacy, period. I want to follow up on what Senator Kane said in his timeline about 2014 and ISIL. And I want to take it back one additional year to 2013, because it was October of 2013 when the administration declared it was going to make a limited strike against Assad because he crossed the red line that had been drawn in the sand in Syria. The Congress, not this committee, I might add, but the Congress kind of backed up on that, didn't give him the support, and the administration, although they could have under the War Powers Act, gone ahead and made a limited strike, decided not to. So we became a paper tiger at that particular point in time. That was in 2013. In 2014, ISIL knew we were getting ready to leave Iraq open in terms of any American troops being left there. We created a vacuum in Iraq, which ISIL immediately filled by claiming for a territory. We're taking some of it back now with our coalition partners, but the fact is we took a terrible setback because we withdrew entirely from Iraq. So my beginning of my statement is, I think we made a mistake, we Republicans and Democrats, administration and Congress, by backing away from doing a definitive military lesson in Syria in 2013 when we had the opportunity and there was a clear line that had been drawn in the sand. I understand the need to do diplomacy and I prefer diplomacy any time over war. I lose every war I ever have with my wife with diplomacy I sometimes can win. So I think it's important to have a good diplomatic solution, but diplomacy only works when there's a threat of force otherwise. Now yesterday in the, in the Armed Services Committee, General Dunforth and uh, Secretary Carter said that uh, the door was open for more, and I quote, direct action against ISIL. Now that's a eyes of the beholder type statement, but at least it sends the signal that they may be looking at other options in terms of ISIL. And I think ISIL is the focal point upon which a, a military action or an expansion of military action is not only appropriate, but instructive in helping us with diplomacy everywhere else, personally. 
the spoils of war that ISIL has won in terms of the refugee issue. I just got back from Greece and Italy where we've seen a half a million refugees, 70% of them Syrian middle-class people, flowing through Greece trying to get into Europe. The Hungarians closing their border. We see a crisis of immense proportion going all the way to the country of Sweden that's going to get worse next year than it is this year simply because of things that are taking place now. So my question, I'm making a speech, and I apologize for that, but my, my question is, if we don't consider forcefully and, and practically the use of force against ISIL to wipe them out militarily or to send such a clear signal to them they're going to be wiped out that they back away, that cancer is going to continue to grow because you can't negotiate with somebody that will cut off your head, burn somebody in the town square, destroy the antiquities of history of a country or kill humanitarians. You just can't do it. And I, I think we've got a great air force. I think the airstrikes are fine, but you don't win them with airstrikes. And we cannot let that cancer continue to grow because if we do, no diplomatic solution in any Middle Eastern problem is going to help. So I'd just like for you to comment for just a second, not necessarily on my premise on this, but on what was said yesterday by General Dunforth and, and Secretary Carter. And if you believe a possibility to have a more robust military action against ISIL would be a positive result. General Carter, General Allen. Um, well, Senator, I, I uh, absolutely agree with what you said. Uh, this is, uh, I, I've been around a little while and I've never seen anything like this organization before in it, the depths of, of its deprivation and its depravity. Uh, and this is an organization that we obviously have to deal with. Uh, I think the uh, testimony yesterday from General Dunford and, and Secretary uh, Carter uh, pointed to recommendations and thoughts uh, that they are going to provide to the President of the United States on uh, the potential means to, to a deal with or to enhance the means by which we want to accomplish the ends uh, and direct action as I was describing earlier, uh, the idea of pressuring Daesh simultaneously around its periphery, which is we're setting ourselves up to begin to do that. One of the values of direct action is going after the nervous system inside. Uh, this is where no one on the planet does it better than we do, the targeted direct action strike force supported raid. Uh, and I won't go into the operational details associated with it, uh, but I think that that's frankly a positive uh, development in the thinking conceivably for how to deal with Daesh. And I'll just make one key point. When uh, our special operators entered the Abu Sayyaf compound last year, killed him and the other two that were in the meeting with him and, and wiped out his personal security detachment, and then arrested his wife, Um Sayyaf, who was responsible for the slave trade of ISIL, and liberated a Yazidi sex slave and took seven terabytes of information off the compound, it wasn't because we just did that raid spontaneously. You can imagine that as we did in Afghanistan every night, 10 to 15 times across the country, it was a well-developed mission, uh, which uh, had a very high likelihood of success when properly supported. And it not only accomplished a military objective, it, it accomplished an extraordinarily important intelligence objective as well. And other ISIL leaders, have met their end directly as a result of the sensitive site exploitation coming out of the Abu Sayyaf raid. And I believe that's what the secretary and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs were describing yesterday. And I, if they're thinking in those terms uh, and making that recommendation to the President of the United States, and I would certainly support it. Well, I, I appreciate your answer because I'm up in 2016 for re-election. And there's lots going to happen between now and next November. But this is one person that's going to be a voice and a vote 
for a more aggressive stance against ISIL to see to it we go after the enemy of all mankind, not just the United States of America. And I know once terrorism came, that genie got out of the bottle, you're never going to put it back in. But by golly, we shouldn't tolerate it. And we should give every effort the United States can do to destroy it in its most robust fashion possible. And I think it helps with the diplomacy in Syria if you separate that action away from the Syrian people and Assad and target it strictly on the enemy, which is or ISIL, which is Syria's <coughs> enemy as well as our enemy. That's exactly correct, sir. I absolutely support your comment. And I know my time's almost up, but I want to thank Ms. Patterson for a statement you made, which was, I think, very telling and very honest and very candid, which you always are. You talked to say, the chairman asked you the goals of the administration in the Middle East, and you said counterterrorism, human rights, economic growth, and then you said all of which we're pursuing, but we're being limited because of ISIL, and we're kind of in a series of crisis management in the Middle East. And I thought that was a very honest answer because you take any front page of any newspaper in America and go from day to day, it's another crisis in the Middle East different from the crisis we had the day before. So counterterrorism and things like that are impossible to have strategies on when you're reacting on a daily basis to the forces that are at work. So I hope as a country we will use our military strength as an example of what, why diplomacy is a far better way to reach solutions in the Middle East than military solutions. But if we have to, we're prepared to do whatever it takes to see to it that the United States enforces and respects human rights and the right of law and the right rule of law in every nation in the country, in the world. Thank you very much, Ms. Patterson. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses. Uh, last month, I got the opportunity to visit the men and women who have been running our train and equip program uh, in the region. I've opposed this program from the start, thought it was destined to fail, but uh, they uh, frankly were doing a pretty miraculous job, incredibly capable people with a mission that was very, very difficult. And one of the reasons that it was difficult, and they testified to this, and there's been plenty of open reporting to say the same, was that we were recruiting individuals to fight only one of their two sworn enemies, that we were asking people to sign up to fight ISIS, uh, and to essentially forswear fighting Assad with our help, uh, and thus it was very difficult to recruit and ultimately it was going to be difficult to control uh, the forces that we had trained in the battle space. And so uh, there's all this open reporting now, and S Senator Kane referred to it, about uh, increasing our support for the so-called vetted moderate Syrian opposition, uh, whether it be with increased um, weaponry, whether it be with embedded special forces or with airstrike capability. Uh, and I guess my question for you, General Allen, is has anything changed? Um, can we successfully support the moderate Syrian opposition so long as our support comes with a significant string attached to it that we will only support them if they are only fighting ISIS or can or is the only way for us to be effective in an increased level of support for the, the opposition to admit that we need to help them fight ISIS and we need to help them fight Assad at the same time. The president's been clear that it, it, it's not his intention to, uh, to uh, support the moderate Syrians in a, in a go-to-war strategy against uh, Assad. Uh, we sought to support the moderate Syrians to be able to defend themselves uh, we've uh, sought to support the moderate Syrians so that they could carve out uh, an area within Syria in which they were relatively secure, and to support the moderate Syrians uh, to, to uh, fight and uh, ultimately assist us in defeating ISIL. Uh, 
but the, either the reality or the perception uh, that uh, they can only fight ISIL has been an impediment. And it's been difficult, obviously, uh, in both the recruiting and, uh, and in the development of the, the commitment necessary from Syrian elements uh, to, to be committed to the program. And that was one of the difficulties of the TNE program. Uh, the groups that we're supporting today, uh, beyond the adaptation of the TNE program as it will evolve over time, but as the as we have evolved uh, in the last uh, several months, the support to those other elements within uh, Syria that we have found uh, have the capacity both to fight and the will to fight uh, has been, by virtue of their location in Syria, uh, primarily uh, focused. Our focus is on Daesh, and their focus is on Daesh. So at this particular moment uh, in the development of our relationships, uh, this has worked out uh, to our benefit. Um, Secretary Patterson, um, do, uh, does the administration have the authority uh, to uh, open up a front against Assad? Should that be the recommendation in order to effectively recruit individuals into the moderate Syrian opposition or effectively coordinate with them? Is there the belief that there is legal authority uh, right now uh, to make a decision to empower the Syrian moderate opposition to fight both ISIL and Assad? Is this a legal question or is this a, simply a strategic question? It is a legal question, uh, Senator, and one that I'm not qualified to answer, really. But there are important legal elements of that, and we can certainly get somebody up here to answer that question for you. But the State Department has not made a determination that it does not have the legal authority. This is an open question within the State Department. Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, I, I, I would rather not uh, speculate on that because it is a very complex legal issue and one that I have at least been on the periphery of very considerable discussion. Uh, so I would like to get somebody up here who's qualified to respond to you. Um, General Allen, I thought you did about as good a job as I've heard anybody do in explaining the, the, the roots of the problem in the region, that of course there's a military component to the fight against ISIL, but in the end you can't solve this problem unless you solve the underlying political realities of the region, which drive people to these extremist groups. Um, and um, Secretary Patterson, you talked about what's happening in Baghdad uh, today, and I think you had some level of optimism. Um, I, during that same trip, I got the chance to go to Baghdad, and I'm not sure that I walked away with the same level of optimism uh, about uh, Abadi's willingness to reforms. Sort of the reforms that he suggested have been, you know, fairly paper thin. We've been hearing for a very, very long time about a Sunni National Guard that they cannot get their act together to begin. The military is still uh, effectively 95% Shiite. There's really no understanding now of how, if we were able to take back Ramadi, that there would be an effective um, uh, multi-sectarian or Sunni-led military force that could hold it. So um, a question is, I guess, for, for, for either of you, but it, it just doesn't seem like we actually have the leverage with a body right now to uh, get him to take those tough steps uh, to fully integrate the military, to give the Sunnis some participation in a force that would ultimately hold these areas once we take back. Um, 
tell me what we need to do in order to get a body to take the next several steps. It's not just enough to replace a handful of deputy prime ministers. Um, he's actually got to make a commitment uh, to reform the military, and that's not happening yet. Let me, uh, let me make some broad comments. I was just in, in Baghdad and had the opportunity to meet with uh, the prime minister, his national security advisor, and the minister of defense and interior. I do believe that uh, Prime Minister Abadi uh, has been and continues to be a partner we can work with, uh, given his predecessor and, and given the realities that we face today. Uh, he is an individual that we should be publicly and openly supporting, and I don't propose that your question did otherwise. Uh, but he is, he is someone that deserves our support. He's been very clear and open in his intent to institute these reforms, and, and frankly, He's encountering a lot of headwind uh, in Baghdad right now and attempting to undertake these reforms because many of the very individuals that would be the most affected by those reforms are uh, uniting politically to oppose those reforms. And it's created not just opposition to the reforms themselves, it has uh, created uh, an environment in which his, his status is even more tenuous. I think the, the important uh, dimension that uh, that we should be aware of is that the the support from Najaf has been very important for him. Uh, His Eminence, the Grand Ayatollah uh, Ali Al Sistani, and uh, the Majoria have been very supportive of him, and that has given him some real capability to move this forward. <clears throat> but many of the folks that will be affected the most by the reforms are the ones who are either individually or collectively making it difficult for him to institute those reforms. But he remains committed to them. They're not going as forward as fast as we would like. They're not having the kind of penetration that we would like, but he's, he remains committed to those reforms. Let me talk just briefly about uh, Ramadi because I think it's really important. Ramadi and the campaign in Al-Anbar benefits from lessons that we have learned in Salah Adin province with respect to Tikrit. And you are in fact correct that uh, much of the four columns that are converging on Ramadi right now uh, are populated by uh, troops that are Shia in orientation, and we have hoped that uh, greater Sunni recruitment into the armed forces would come about. The conditions just aren't there right now for the Shia population, either to be contacted in large quantities or to be recruited in large quantities into the security forces. But the, the governor in Al-Anbar is, is a Sunni. He is very supportive of his relationship with Prime Minister Abadi. Uh, he has a, pri a provincial chief of police who has done a great deal to recover the Sunni police of Al-Anbar. They're being trained, they're being equipped, they're being prepared along with tribal fighters from Al-Anbar to be the force that ultimately enters Ramadi once it is cleared, to be the hold force that pro provides security to the population that prevents the re-emergence of Daesh in that population. So in the context of clearing forces, we're, we just by virtue of the dint of the, the demographic makeup of the Iraqi population, we're going to see preponderance of Shia on the ground clearing the city. But we're already posturing the Anbari police and the tribal elements to come in right behind that, ultimately to hold the ground and to secure the population. This is something we've learned from Tikrit, and this is something that we seek to apply in the follow-on uh, aspects of the counteroffensive. <laughs> and, and it is difficult. But it is, uh, it is an area where we're gaining ground, I think. You all have an impossible job, but it sort of sounds like this is a record that we've heard before, the uh, lack of political uh, progress inside Baghdad, the lack of ability to integrate the military. I, I just hope that we are thinking of 
new means of leverage to try to uh, change the dynamics inside Baghdad because I worry that we'll be back here a year from now telling the, the same story about the political headwinds against a body having not changed. A difficult job, but uh, I thank you for doing it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Risch. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, General Allen, uh, as the uh, special envoy uh, to counter ISIL, I thought you probably just a few minutes ago made as direct, clear uh, of an explanation as possibly can be made as to why this is important to the people of the United States of America in fighting the most depraved group that, uh, that exists on the planet today and will go down in history as, as that uh, in modern times. So I, I appreciate that and I, th and I think uh, uh, we all need to be uh, more articulate in why this is important uh, to America and to Americans. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. The second point that you made, uh, and I think that most Americans don't fully appreciate, and that is uh, you described the military might of the United States. And I couldn't agree with you more. Most Americans don't understand just how powerful this country is when it comes to military might. And, and how far we exceed every other nation on the face of this planet. And that is, it isn't by a little bit. It's by a tremendous amount. No one can stand to us if it comes to that. We don't want it to come to that. We're not that kind of people. Uh, we want people to mind their own business and to go about their lives and, uh, and to do good things and, uh, and be humanitarian about it. But we occasionally get in a position where uh, we wind up having to do something. And I think that uh, certainly uh, uh, ISIL is, uh, is something that's, that's demanding more and more of our attention in that regard, and it's unfortunate, but it's a fact of life. The problem with, what you, the, the, with uh, the extension of what you have just said is because we have this military might, it begs the question of, so what? If everyone else in the world is, is convinced that we will not pull the trigger, what difference does it make? Uh, and I can't tell you how much I have the feeling that the Russians are convinced of that. After watching what, what they did so brazenly this late summer, July and August, in Syria, and coming in and doing what they have done, they have got to be convinced we're not going to pull the trigger. Uh, here we have a group that we have chosen to support, as you have described, not to support to make, uh, uh, to do certain things, but certainly to defend themselves. The Russians have come in, and as they have always done, they've used deception and denial, and they have attacked the, the very group that the United States of America has put under at least this umbrella that Ann Patterson has just described of defense. They've come in and they have attacked them brazenly. Now, and what have, what have they said when they were challenged? He said, oh, well, we're really after ISIL. Well, you know, and I know, because you've seen the same material that I have, that their, their minimal attacks on ISIL are window dressing when it comes to what they're doing. I mean, they are beating the heck out of Assad's opposition. That's what they, that's what they have done. So people are going to look at this and they're going to say, well, uh, yes, the United States has all this might, but what are they doing in response to an attack on their friends that they've chosen to help? They're going to have their warplanes stay 20 miles away. 
I mean, it, I suspect if you were in charge there, you wouldn't let that happen. But that's where we are with this situation, and something's got to change. You guys are in charge of this. I don't know how you're going to do it, but something uh, has got to change. One of the problems we have, I think, is the fact that there is probably, and I, I've got to be careful how I say this, but there's been at least some acknowledgments in some areas that the White House feels that their legal ground may be tenuous. And I know, uh, Secretary Patterson, you've just said this isn't your bailiwick and you can't answer the question, and I'm sure that's true also with you, General Allen. Senator, Senator Kane has been a real leader on this issue, and that is before we can make these kinds of decisions, we gotta know what kind of legal ground we're standing on. And there are two legal issues here involved. Number one, making war on Assad, uh, who we have said we want to see removed. Well, by what international standard or law are we saying we can do that? Here you have a country that's set up. Now, first of all, there isn't anybody that disagrees that Assad's a bad guy or, and should go. But you still got to have legal authority to, to do that. And I've yet to hear a clear legal description of, uh, of uh, how we can justify doing that. I think that, I think that issue's gotta be resolved if we are gonna continue to be a nation of laws as we claim we are. And secondly, and just as importantly, is the legal question of by what authority is the second branch of government doing this? Senator Kane has been uh, eloquent in his descriptions of uh, uh, reticence on a lot of our part that this, that this resolution from uh, way back uh, is being used uh, to now use military force in, uh, in Syria. I mean, this is a long, long way from what was authorized to be used against al-Qaeda uh, way back when. And I think that's got to be resolved. I think once those two are resolved, I think there's going to be a, a much clearer path forward to getting a... Uh, a a tactic and uh, a, uh, a way of accomplishing the goals that, uh, that you've set. I, I think the administration has been clear in their goal. They want Assad to go. They want peace in, in Syria. But we ain't getting there. And, uh, and so I think these, these two legal questions have got to be resolved. Well, my time's almost up. Let me just conclude with this. Um, Secretary Patterson, I, with all due respect, and I, and I mean that sincerely, I've heard you now over the last couple of days talk about how overstated the influence of Russia is in the region, and more importantly, how overstated it is as to how quickly their abilities and their respect is, uh, is growing in the region. And, and you deny this by just saying, well, it's your opinion that that's overstated. With all due respect, everything around you, all the media, all the people we meet with in the region, very much counter this. I quoted to you what a former ambassador from Saudi Arabia said yesterday uh, that, that directly counters what you've said, and you poo-pooed that and said, oh, well, they don't, he doesn't speak for Saudi Arabia anymore. I think this is a dangerous, dangerous position for the United States to be in if, if they are taking the position that, oh, this is going to go away. This isn't a big problem. So with that, my time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, the one question that... Uh I hope we'll get to it at some point. I, I, the comments you made at the first part of your uh, statement, I, I agree with strongly. But Europe, which is being uh, decimated, if you will, by the refugees, uh, seems to not share 
our concerns. I mean, they very tepidly, if, if at all, were even involved in trying to deal with the issue of ISIS and ISIL. Almost no involvement in Syria. So it's fascinating to me that uh, uh, relative to our involvement, and it's just, uh, that, that to me is fascinating, but with that, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much. Uh, General Allen, can you talk a little bit about the attitudes of the Shiite leaders of Iraq in terms of reincorporating Sunnis into the leadership in the country? We all know now that the single biggest mistake was the um, Bush administration decision to just remove uh, not just the generals in the uh, in the army, but all officers that had anything to do with ensuring that there would be some continuity. You know, this debathification was taken so far uh, that it polarized the Sunni community, and so uh, we know that the you know the hand-picked leader, uh, the the Shiite leader Maliki back in 2006, that he unfortunately harbored those same sentiments and treated the Sunni population in a way that only continued, you know, the uh, acceleration of that sense of isolation that the Sunnis have uh, in that country. So give us a little bit of an update right now um, in terms of, let's take Tikrit. As, as Sunnis return to Tikrit, uh, are they now allowed to assume leadership roles in the government in Tikrit? Uh, and could you give us kind of an outline of what those leadership roles might be that they've been given if that is in fact happening? Uh, it's an important question because it goes to the issue ultimately of uh, reconciliation, uh, which is, uh, the, if you will, the social human aspect of what we're seeking to do in a, in a material sense, which is to restore the territorial integrity of Iraq. We have to do that in a human nature, a human manner as well. Uh, My wife, Rand, was the chief of behavioral medicine at the National Institutes of Health, and she always said there's two choices in life. One is reenactment, very bad, leads to escalation. The other is reconciliation. Will you hear the other side? And countries are like individuals. That's right. They have the same pathologies, and in the absence of ongoing interventions, the underlying pathology almost invariably recurs. So. If you could give us a little summary of Tikrit, yep. what has happened since the Sunnis have begun to repopulate? Uh, I'll, we'll, we'll, I'll take the question, but I'll answer it as well, because I want to give you some statistics. Okay, uh, good. And I, I don't have those at, off the top of my head. But Tikrit uh, is an example of where we would love to see the entire conflict end up. Uh, first of all, there is a Sunni provincial governor in Salah Adin who has worked in partnership with uh, Prime Minister Abadi in the process both of the recovery of Tikrit but also now the repopulation of Tikrit. Uh, we, the coalition, worked closely with the Iraqi interagency uh, led by the Germans and the Emiratis, of course, with the Americans deeply involved in the process uh, of helping to uh, move funding with the Iraqi government into the repopulation of Tikrit. About 75% of the population has gone home, well over 200,000 of the individuals, primarily Sunni, who were, who were displaced as IDPs uh, from Tikrit. So the process of clearing the city was largely done by PMF and... Uh, PMF Iraqi, is? Uh, uh, Hashtashabi, the uh, provinci uh, Popular Mobilization Front. I, I know if I, I know if I, it's Arabic general, term. Just an acronym test, yep. yeah. 
the Popular Mobilization Force, which are the forces that were called to the fatwa of the Grand Ayatollah last year. And so the Iraqi security forces and the PMF cleared uh, to Crete, which is largely a Shia uh, clearing force. Immediately behind that clearing force came in elements of the Sunni police and tribal elements to secure the city, which then permitted the return of the Sunni population, 75%, 215,000 or so to, by this point. The Iraqi central government lined up, a Shia government, lined up the interagency to provide the restoration of essential services in conjunction with the work of the coalition. And what we see there is, to your point, Senator, uh, where there are difficulties with reconciliation at a legislative level, at the national level, the kinds of return that we get with the right kinds of the sequencing of the support to the Sunni population and the reestablishment of Sunni leadership on the ground creates the effect of reconciliation. From so the are the Sunnis now running to Crete? Effectively. I, I need to get you the various, yes they are, yes. The, the so you're saying, in other words, essentially if this was the United States of America, they would have elected a Sunni mayor at this point because it's overwhelmingly Sunni. I'm just talking about the functional political leadership inside of that city now yes. in a larger you know, confederation with the rest of the country. Is it now Sunni it run effectively, and picking up the garbage, the police, the... The, by, uh, by and large, it is. And, by and large, it is. And the intent with Ramadi is to do exactly the same thing. Okay, well, I think that's an important you know, message to get out, that there is a success story there. But I think perhaps you could give us a more detailed you know, a, a written explanation we will do of that. where we are. Because I, I want to go over to you as well, Ambassador Armstrong. By the way, thank you. Um, uh, and, uh, thank you both for, I mean, Patterson, I'm sorry. Just um, you're both great public servants. And, uh, and I thank you for your work in Pakistan, especially in my work with you. Let's move over to um, Yemen, if we could, and political reconciliation over there, how you view the Saudis, uh, how you view the likelihood that they could move towards some form of political reconciliation uh, so that we can de-escalate this, you know, this uh, military um, confrontation that, you know, promises uh, 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 the same kind of results in Yemen that we're seeing in Syria right now. So talk us a little bit about the Saudi Arabians, what their attitudes are, and uh, what we're doing to press them uh, into uh, thinking more about a, a, a negotiated resolution politically of this conflict. Uh, yes, Senator. F first, let me say that I think there are some hopeful signs uh, under the UN auspices that the uh, Yemenis among themselves will come together in some kind of a uh, uh, process. But, but we, we talk to the Saudis uh, all the time about this. And when the secretary was there the, uh, a few days ago, this was, of course, an issue on the agenda. We have urged the Saudis to improve humanitarian access to Yemen. That is a very urgent priority. And things have become marginally better as more fuel has come in. But, Senator, there are uh, issues that go really to the heart of Saudi Arabia's security, which are the attacks on their border, the cross-border attacks and cross-border incursions. And, of course, we have been assisting them uh, in resisting that and providing a, a certain, uh, a certain facilitation so that they can resist that more effectively. But we're very concerned about the situation there. The, the likelihood of, of a humanitarian disaster and incipient famine seems uh, 
very acute. Uh, again, I think we're reasonably optimistic because, frankly, many Saudis understand, most Saudis understand that this can't go on uh, much longer because it's going to turn the Yemeni population against them uh, and because they are going to be responsible for rebuilding the country and it's going to be very costly in terms of both influence and, and resources. So I thank you both. And if I could say to you again, General, if you could just tell the Iraqi government how much this committee would like to believe that there is a metric inside of Tikrit and other liberated cities that you can report back to us in terms of the number of public officials, the amount of control, the, the amount of Sunni you know, leadership that is unquestioned uh, inside of those cities. That would help us a lot Glad to that. see that progress was possible. And the same thing is true with the Saudi Arabians, okay? That I mean, we need a metric here that they're actually you know, moving you know, in, a, in a way that we have evidence in, in Yemen uh, and that it's not just going to be a repetition syndrome again, uh, where we're having this Shiite-Sunni thing just play out, and that they are not taking where they have opportunities a diplomatic alternative. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here today and for your service. Um, I just returned from Germany and Greece, where we got a chance to see firsthand what's happening with the refugees in Europe. and and also to talk to them about um, their perspective on Syria and the Middle East. And I think it's fair to say that the Germans would say that they have been contributing to uh, the effort in the Middle East to fight ISIS. I wonder if one of you could detail, given Senator Corker's uh, raising that concern, if you could detail what exactly our European partners are doing to support the effort against ISIS. Uh, we're, we're organized within the coalition along five lines of effort. Uh, there are a large number of our European partners who have contributed ground forces uh, to the training mission and to the advising mission, and a number of them have uh, contributed uh, aviation assets for strike operations uh, in Iraq primarily and are considering strike operations in uh, Syria, and the French are striking in Syria along with us. Um, they've also... Uh, provided leadership uh, to a number of the other of the lines of effort. The counter-narrative is uh, the British are leading that effort, uh, and many of our European partners are uh, participating in, in working closely on the countering of the narrative of Daesh. Um, the Germans are leading the stabilization effort and are championing the uh, development of the UNDP funding facility for immediate stabilization, which is the, the money that goes immediately behind the clearing effort to begin to restore essential services. The Germans have been very important to the process of leading that in partnership with the Emiratis. Uh, within the stabilization working group, the Italians uh, have uh, been very uh, forthcoming uh, in volunteering their carabinieri, which are the finest, some of the finest police on the planet, and they are leading the training of the Sunni police to be the follow-on force behind the Shia clearing force. That's been an extraordinarily important contribution. Um, the, uh, the Dutch uh, are co-leading the countering the foreign fighter uh, effort uh, along with uh, many other members of the coalition as the Italians are co-leading the effort on countering Daesh finances. 
And within each one of those lines of effort, there are multiple uh, coalition members, many European members, who are prominent in that process of helping. So our European partners are deeply, deeply embedded and deeply committed inside the coalition to our, our collective effort ultimately to defeat Daesh. Thank you. Um, Assistant Secretary Patterson, um, several people have raised the issue of refugees, and, and I certainly believe that the number um, and flow of refugees poses a real threat to Europe, to the European Union, and that it's important for us to figure out what we can do to support the efforts um, with the humanitarian needs and the relocation needs of the refugees. Can you detail what our um, Gulf partners are doing to help with the refugee crisis? I can certainly say that they have provided uh, very considerable funding to address the refugee crisis, in the, certainly in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I think the issue you're getting at is, is the resettlement of some of the Syrian uh, refugees in these Gulf countries. And this is an issue that we have uh, discussed with them any number of times. They argue that they have taken in uh, tens of thousands of these refugees. Uh, I think the answer to that is that they are people that are legally there as guest workers and not under refugee status. That's really the, the distinction. Uh, so we continue to have this discussion with them. And, and of course, if I might say so, we have put well over $4 billion into this effort, uh, primarily in Jordan and Lebanon, which are the two most seriously affected countries. And we continue to, for want of a better word, fundraise with all our allies consistently on this. You all have been quite generous on this issue too. Um, well, I certainly agree that Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey have all taken in more than their share of refugees, but for some of the other Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, um, UAE, other countries, um, not only have they not taken in refugees, but they've also contributed, as I understand, only um, intermittently to the financial need to address humanitarian efforts around the refugees. And so while they may have committed funding, that that funding hasn't always been forthcoming. And I would hope that we would do everything possible to try and urge them to um, join Europe and the rest of the international community and doing everything we can to support the refugees. Um, Ambassador Patterson, you started talking about Tunisia, which is one of the few bright spots in the Middle East in terms of the potential for um, a functioning democracy. Can you talk about what more we should be doing to support Tunisia? Senator Shaheen, I went to Tunisia about two weeks ago, and it was not too long after the terrorist attacks, and the, the effect of these two attacks on the museum and on the, the beach uh, with European tourists was absolutely devastating. You could see empty hotels, empty museums, empty planes. So we have to step up our efforts there. And we're stepping up our efforts in terms of loan guarantees and economic assistance. We, if I might make a plug, we sent uh, uh, to, the, to the Congress uh, greatly enhanced financial package for Tunisia uh, this year. Uh, we're trying to help them with economic reforms and we're trying to help them very importantly, because this is our, uh, um, this is an area in which we specialize to build up their security forces and their counterterrorism capacity. 
uh, to identify these terrorist threats. It's going to be hard uh, because they're next door to Libya, uh, and, and this young man had trained in Libya who committed one of these attacks and was a lone wolf. But our focus, at least in the short run, is on building up their security forces and their counterterrorism capacity. They have over a million Libyans in Tunisia at this time. Uh, so they're also taking the brunt of these uh, ungoverned spaces. But we'll do everything we can. They'll, they'll, um, uh, Mr. Granucci is here this week, and then next week we're going to honor some Tunisians with the Nobel Peace Prize, including their uh, national labor leader. Thank you. Is, it, is our assessment that the biggest threat to Tunisia is the chaos in Libya? Yes, that's our assessment, that it will be spillover from Libya um, and, and the terrorist attacks that will emanate uh, uh, from Tunisia. And, and Tunisia, Senator, has the highest per capita number of, of jihadis, of extremists in the world per population. So there are also issues in Tunisia uh, with, with uh, uh, countering violent extremism, with reintegration, with better education and job creation. All these issues we're trying to, to help on that obviously need urgent attention. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Cardin. Once again, we appreciate your um, service and your patience here today to answer our questions. General Allen, I wanna deal with the impact that the Syrian conflict is having on one of our key strategic partners, Jordan, in the region. We've talked about the refugee issues, and the impact the refugee issues is having on the humanitarian international crisis, but also on the impact on surrounding countries. Jordan has taken in an extreme number of Syrian refugees. With Russia's military presence now in Syria, the question becomes whether there will be additional destabilizing activities that could increase the number of refugees. This is of particular concern in southern Syria, which has not seen much activity of late, but with the Syrian concern about the strength of the opposition and now being emboldened by Russia's military presence, there is a fear that there could be activity against the civilian population in southern Syria that could very well increase the number of refugees going to Jordan. Do we have a, a strategy uh, to make sure that one of our key strategic partners, Jordan, uh, has uh, our uh, help in deterring that type of activity in Syria? Uh, I, I'll answer, and if the Ambassador would like to as well, but uh, the answer, Senator, is yes. Uh, it is very important to us. Uh, the, the security of Jordan is extraordinarily important to the United States and to the region. Uh, we are very attentive to the demographic laydown of the population in southwest Syria, which is directly adjacent to, the, if you will, the heartland of Jordan. Uh, I was just there, just spoke with uh, the head of uh, their intelligence service and also their chief of defense. Uh, they're very focused on it. We're also with them very focused on this issue. Uh, I, I won't get into the operational details, uh, but I will assure you, Senator, that that is a major point of focus and interest uh, for uh, the Department of Defense and for the Department of State, sir. Good. And I would encourage you to do that. Ambassador Patterson, do you want to? 
Let, let, let me just add, uh, sir, that as you say, that, that the moderate opposition in southern Syria has been, been more or less holding its own, and they do provide a first uh, line of defense against ISIL incursions. I, I would say that I would, I would, refugee flow, yes, is a very serious concern, but also potential incursions by ISIL. And, and the government's very worried about that. Over the past year, Senator Cardin, we've been trying to accelerate weapons uh, deliveries. We have an extremely large uh, military assistant mission there in all its in all its elements, shall I say. Uh, we've stepped up border security. They, they need a lot of help on the border. I think we've got a briefing planned up here on that particular issue in the, in the next week or so. So, and there, there are other plans in the pipeline to shore up Jordanian security because, as you say, Senator Cardin, it's an absolute essential U.S. ally and, and critical to regional stability and, and, frankly, critical to Israel's defense. And I just point out, it, it, with the Assad regime's uh, history of its attack on innocent civilian population, uh, the fact that ISIL is a threat to that region also could be used as a, a justification for increased uh, uh, regime activities in that region against the uh, population, uh, causing not only the direct loss of life, but also the flow of additional refugees into to Jordan, which would be very destabilizing. So I, I appreciate that we have uh, that under control. Uh, Ambassador Patterson, I want to ask one additional question in regards to your uh, seeing positive steps by Palestinian leaders in regards to dealing with the uh, terrorist activities in, in Israel, the innocent loss of life by uh, lone wolf type attacks using knives and cars. Uh, there have been some positive steps between the Israelis and Palestinians and with U.S. suggestions on the Temple Mount. And I, I don't know what you're referring to when you say positive steps by Palestinian leaders. Uh, Mr. Abbas has been very reticent to condemn the individual attacks in a regular way. Uh, where do you see positive steps by the Palestinian leaders? Well, uh, Senator Cardin, I think the, the Secretary is in uh, constant contact with, with President Abbas, and I would, I would agree with you that some of his statements in the last, uh, uh, regarding this, these unsettled times in the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif have been uh, less than reassuring. But we're constantly in a dialogue with them on these issues and uh, urging them to take a more to take a positive role. Um, I think there was progress over the weekend between Jordan and Israel uh, to reduce the tensions on the Temple Mount, uh, and those will play out over the next few weeks. But I can assure you, the uh, the secretary is deeply involved in, with all three players in this uh, effort right now with the Jordan and Israel and the Palestinians to move this process forward. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, just three quick questions. I, I wanted, uh, Ambassador Pass, and I wanted to clear up, I know that Senator Risch and Senator Kane and others talked about legal authorities, uh, but I think what they were referring to, and, and clarify if you will, uh, when we say there's a debate within the State Department about the legal authorities, you're not talking about the domestic legal authorities relative to Assad. It's international law that you're focused on. Is that correct? Again, I hesitate to go here, but I have been on the periphery, again, of many conversations on this, and there has been a great deal of discussion yeah. 
among our attorneys about just this issue, and that's why I'd like to get them up here to have them discuss on the international law aspects and, and what I would call some evolving areas. And I would assume that if the administration felt that uh, domestically it needed some uh, authorities to do things, they would come and ask for that. Is that correct? I, I'm sure that's true, Senator. So I, I just don't want to leave the impression here that somehow uh, because uh, you're relying upon the 01 authorization to go against ISIS, that somehow uh, lack of actions here are keeping you from carrying out uh, what you want to carry out in Syria. It's the international no, law no, exactly, component. exactly, Senator. That okay. I didn't, and I certainly didn't mean to imply yeah. that. It's the, it's the, it's the. You're quite correct. It's okay. the, in, the, the ambient of international law that we were discussing. And you see no constraints at present relative to domestic law. And if you chose, if you felt like international law allowed you to go in to against Assad for some reason, then you would seek, I assume, uh, domestic authorization to, to go against Assad because the O-1 authorization doesn't authorize you to, to do that. Uh, Senator, I, I know we would seek from the Congress whatever our uh, specialist in this area told us to seek. And so today, I just want to be real clear about this, uh, Congress in no way is inhibiting the administration's ability to carry out what it seeks to carry out in Syria or in Iraq today. That's my understanding, Senator. Okay. Um, secondly, I, I just don't want this conversation to go in a direction I don't think is what you intended and, and certainly not what I am. Uh, there's a memorandum of understanding, I understand, that's been developed between us and Israel. We've not seen a copy of it yet. I wonder if you might describe what that memorandum of understanding, uh, what the contents of it are. You mean the, the one that, there hasn't been one developed, uh, Senator. Are you talking about the military assistance memorandum of understanding? It doesn't expire until 2018. But I understood that some memorandum had recently been developed between the administration and Israel. That, that, that's not that's correct. Not, that's, not, that's not correct. I think what you saw in the press was some, there, there had been some, if I might say, desultory conversations uh, about this, but, but the discussions haven't really uh, started. And, the, of course, the current one is still in effect, which provides uh, for $3.1 billion a year. Yeah. And, and just on that note, I, I know that uh, there have been a lot of discussions about us ramping up our, if you will, uh, efforts towards uh, weaponizing other countries in the Middle East. We've got about a $6 billion FMF budget. 3.1 of it goes to Israel. 1.1.5, I think, roughly goes to Egypt, your former post. Um, uh, just out of curiosity, so that's, you know, 4.6 billion, if I do my math correctly. So how are we allocating those FMF uh, uh, funds in a way that, that do the things that we talked about at Camp David? Well, uh, most of the, the Gulf allies, I think there's, they pay cash. Right. Uh, and, and they often go through the FMF system, but they also, FMS system, the foreign military sales system, but they also, uh, uh, to the extent they can, go direct, uh, do correct, cr direct commercial sales with suppliers. Right. But on the FMF, I would say that uh, our FMF budget is limited. I would love to have more for my countries. Uh, Jordan and Lebanon being uh, very high priorities. Jordan is now a major recipient of, of FMF to the tune of slightly over $300 million a year. 
we need to give more FMF to Tunisia to build up their security forces, so it would be very useful to have more of it. Uh, but most of the security enhancements with the Gulf, all of them that I can think of, are basically directly with U.S. suppliers or through our FMS system, and they purchase them directly. Thank you for that. On that point, we do have a new memorandum of understanding with Jordan. We do, Senator. We do, sir. Uh, and how would that affect the allocation of the existing? Uh, well, basically, uh, the Congress raised the top line. Yeah. Uh, there will be pressures this year, I think, uh, between some worthy recipients in the in the Middle East region about allocating these funds, uh, and and we'll I think work that out work that out with members of this committee and and other other members. But yes, there's tension between, for instance, recipients such as Jordan and and Tunisia, who both need uh, stepped up military assistance, and and I don't want to forget Lebanon in this as well. Uh, they've also been victimized by, by ISIL, and, and their, their security forces have done a good job and are very worthy of our continued support. Mr. Chairman, I would just point out, I mean, we, we don't know how this budget agreement and the allocations are going to be allocated, uh, but I would hope that um, we would be transparent with this committee as to the requests that are being made through the appropriation process so that we can have a unified front in allocating the resources in the most effective way to achieve U.S. objectives. I certainly think we have been transparent, and we can certainly schedule a briefing at, at any time you might desire. We can schedule one right away about some of the trade-offs. Uh, but we are going to have to, to make some hard choices, and the security situation for our allies in the region is, is, is very concerning. Thank you. Um, General, just uh, I referenced Europe earlier, and obviously we, you know, Europe, uh, people have used words, Europe is, you know, the whole context of it is changing because of the refugee crisis. Um, much of that, the genesis of much of that is coming out of Syria. I know Secretary Kerry yesterday alluded to the fact that our interests and Europe's interest and many of the uh, Sunni Arab countries' interests, all of these things will be putting pressure on Russia, uh, apparently, per, per Secretary Kerry, uh, to align with us, if you will, relative to what's, uh, what's happening in Syria. I don't see, I must be missing something, but, you know, we're all horrified by the uh, massive amount of refugees that exist, the biggest humanitarian crisis since World War II. I know that Obviously, Europe directly as far than any other uh, portion of the world is being affected by that. But I don't see the same effort, if you will, uh, relative to Syria. Now, I know you mentioned some things in Iraq, and I may have missed something, but I don't see Europe near as uh, focused on the crisis in Syria as we are, and I wonder if you might just illuminate, uh, maybe that's a false impression. Uh, and I may ask uh, the ambassador to come in uh, with me on this. The, the, we're going to meet next week uh, in Brussels uh, at a small group level, 23 key partners from the coalition, where we intend to talk about Syria, uh, the developments there, and how we might anticipate those developments unfolding so that as a coalition we can be more helpful. Uh, 
I think one of the principal differences, first let me, I'm sorry, to back up. If we were to uh, list for you the bilateral uh, European, and we can seek to do this, in fact, the, the bilateral European assistance to Syria, I think you would find that it's not insignificant. And that is not just in supporting the UN uh, and its appeals for humanitarian assistance, uh, but also specific assistance to uh, elements of the Syrian population. They, of course, have smaller capacity than we do and mm -hmm. less money that they can contribute, but per capita, it's not insignificant. And, and we find that uh, in southern Turkey, there are, other, there are other European partners there uh, who are, in fact, working directly through NGOs uh, to the Syrian population. Well, but, if I could just for a second, I, I'm sure. very rare that I would interrupt you. Um, so Europe, GDP-wise, I, I, actually as a whole, they're as significant as we are. So I, I hear you on the humanitarian piece, but the root of the refugee crisis is the, the what's happening in Syria relative to Assad bombing his own people and what's happening with ISIS. And I guess what I'm missing here is uh, we're outraged by that. And, uh, you know, the committee's outraged. The American people are outraged by that. I don't, I don't understand the disconnect between the tremendous impact on Europe and, and the lack of effort, if you will, their, on their part to, to do something kinetically or in, a, in other ways directly to ISIS. I don't get it. And so, I mean... Certainly, uh, I agree with your comments relative to who ISIS is, and certainly we all collectively understand the threat they are to the world. I don't understand why Europe itself doesn't see that when they're so directly impacted. I, Chairman, I don't know that Europe doesn't see that. My, I, I know quite a few European leaders and the horror that they express, not just at the distress of a huge segment of the population, which has taken to hoof because of its, the, the conditions in the region, uh, but also the stress that now their own societies are ha is having to bear as a direct result of the presence of large numbers of refugees in societies where economically there, there's already difficulties and large uh, unemployment uh, numbers. Europe is under a lot of pressure. I understand here. all the societal issues. Okay. So why are they not more involved for in the root issues? For in many respects, the same reason that we are not. And, and that is that we didn't have options in Syria uh, to take action against Daesh uh, in the way that we now can and the way that we now will until just a few months ago. Uh, Europe has been deeply involved with us from the beginning with regard to Daesh in Iraq because we had platforms that we could create in Iraq where many of the European countries sent their troops at not insignificant cost in Treasury, but certainly the, with the expectation uh, that they, there could be casualties here. And we, we've not been uh, complacent at all with their security, but many European partners have invested uh, not insignificant numbers of their young men and women into the training and advising process, and their aviators are flying in the skies over Iraq every single day, and some of them are flying over Syria. And I expect that as time goes on, as we continue to build our military options on the ground in Syria, we may well find that uh, we'll have other European partners join us in that process. We're in an active conversation with many of our European partners about the potential for them 
to relocate and to join us on the ground in Incirlik. Uh, that's a base that has become available to us, and, and while we haven't got answers back, we've just started the process of asking. Uh, we would love to see uh, Europe, European partners and our Australian uh, colleagues who are with us in all of these fights uh, to join us at Incirlik, because when the time comes for us to really bear down on Daesh in Syria and to close the border with Turkey, it's much easier for us to fly 15 minutes to get to the border or northern, northern Syria than four and a half hours coming out of the Gulf. Right. And so that conversation is, is open. The Europeans are considering our request, whether they do or not. It's a, it's a complex answer. It's not just as simple as go to Turkey. They've got bilateral relationships in the Gulf that are old and have been uh, cultivated in order for them to deploy. So I want to be very clear that my sense of the European commitment, both to the coalition writ large in the sense of expressing the outrage of the community of nations is, is loud and it is constant from our coalition partners, but also the, the tangible physical, the human commitment and the monetary commitment uh, to the coalition has not been insignificant either. The opportunity to do things in Syria has not been nearly as uh, available to our European partners as has been the opportunity for them to participate in a very credible, real, open and visible way in Iraq, and I expect that as time goes on uh, and as more opportunities become available to us, we may well see our European partners become more kinetically involved in Syria. So I know you've referenced Incirlik a couple times, and we all thank you for your efforts um, to create the conditions where Turkey would be uh, willing to let us use that. But over the last 60 days, you say conditions have changed. That's obviously one of the changes. What are some of the other conditions that have changed that will make uh, make it much more easy, if you will, for, for Europe to be much more kinetically involved in what's happening in Syria? Um, I th beyond the potential contributions for aviation, we may well see that if, if we do more in terms of supporting some of the, uh, the groups in Syria, uh, we may see some European counterparts be willing to join us in that process. And whether it's provide additional equipment or provide additional uh, training and support, uh, and I want to be very careful about some of the operational details in this forum that I would discuss with respect to those options, and I'm happy to go offline with you uh, on both of those, we may well see that we have European partners willing to do it. And it's not just about Turkey, it's about the South as well. Uh, what we're seeking to do is to create pressure on Daesh across its entire periphery. Uh, and there may be opportunities in the South as well as in the North where our coalition partners, our European coalition partners, could in fact play an important role in, and I'm thinking special operations, but I won't become more specific than that. And just, just, you get the sense, I mean, we've seen, you've seen, others have talked about, you know, what, uh, what Russia has done on the ground relative to, quote, our friends. Um, do you see a situation developing where, where Russia would concentrate its efforts solely on ISIS and not on the more moderate groups that, uh, quote, are our friends? No, I don't see that at all, uh, Chairman. I think the, the Russians aren't there to deal with ISIS. I mean, so, no, so, so, if you will, that, you know, 180 degrees contradicts what Secretary Kerry said yesterday, 180 degrees, in that he does see us uh, having the, the focus together on ISIS. Uh, again, that's why I asked him my opening comments or made the, made the comments about the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground are that Russia is killing our friends, and so, and you don't see them. 
moving away from killing our friends to focusing like we are on ISIS. You don't see that happening. I want to be very clear that the way you phrased the question, which was that Russia would ex focus exclusively on ISIL, I don't see that they're going to do that. Because Russia, in the end, is there to stabilize Assad. And the, if you will, the, the wolf closest to the door for Assad is Jabhat al-Nusra and other elements, Jaysh al-Fatah and some of the Syrian opposition elements that, that we have a relationship with. Those are the ones that are the greatest threat. And those are the ones where the Russians are, in fact, providing uh, support to both the regime's ground forces and Hezbollah and Iranian-supported elements. They're providing that capability to first stabilize the situation and probably ultimately to uh, recover the Alawi heartland. Uh, and at this juncture, uh, we, we, we haven't seen and we, we won't, I think, see a large-scale Russian investment in going after ISIL because it has to do what it came there to do which is to pre prevent the collapse of the Assad regime. That doesn't mean eventually that they won't join us in a, in a larger investment of their resources in dealing with Daesh. But for now, I think very clearly, while we had an expectation that we would partner to deal with Daesh, that the Russians would play a role in the reduction of violence uh, and the reduction of the conflict, and then play a role constructively with us in creating a political transition, we haven't seen any of that. And so for now, the coalition is going to continue to remain uh, focused on and will bear down on Daesh as an entity, while the secretary is taking the steps necessary with this potential opportunity to try to create that conversation where the Russians could conceivably join that conversation to set the conditions for the potential for transition. But for now, the Russians have got to do what they came there to do, and that's stabilize Assad. And to do that, they've got to attack those forces that are the greatest threat to Assad. Daesh is somewhere down the pike for them, as far as I'm concerned. And I think that, you know, the Russians are going to start feeling some serious pain on this. The regime forces aren't doing that well under Russian close air support. Uh, they are underperforming. And I think the Russians are, are definitely dismayed uh, by the uh, performance of the regime forces under uh, both Russian artillery support and aviation support. There are other elements within the groups within Syria that are beginning to mass their capabilities. As Secretary Carter said yesterday, the, the Russians are catalyzing a unity between groups that we might not otherwise have wanted to happen. But they're doing it for survival purposes to fight the Russians and to defend themselves against uh, a, a ground uh, uh, offensive by the, by the regime. And also, uh, we're seeing probably somewhere between 50 and 80,000 refugees that are beginning to emerge because of direct Russian support of the regime elements in Hama and Homs province and Aleppo. I mean, we could see an entire new wave of refugees coming from the Russian incursion here. This isn't a great strategic move on their part. This is a, a move to, to prop up one of their oldest overseas allies, perhaps their only overseas ally at this point, taking Cuba off the table. And uh, they're gonna find this to become very, very difficult. Already, the support that they're giving is not providing the kind of outcome that they had wanted. And, and so they're probably gonna find in the very near future, since they're not gonna be able to resolve this militarily, that they want to start to think about a, a political resolution. And that's why it's important for them to seriously consider getting involved in this uh, conversation that the Secretary is trying to set up. He sees this as an opportunity. And I'm in no way at your last public hearing trying to draw you into a, uh, a conflict with the Secretary. I will say it's my strong impression, and I'll use those words so that it, uh, um, it can be challenged. 
okay? My strong impression is that the Secretary believes that a fundamental first step is for Russia to stop killing those that are our friends. And that's why I've said in the past and said yesterday that the facts on the ground today, which you're alluding to right now, don't lead one to believe that on Friday uh, there's going to be a lot of progress because there's just uh, such a difference in what their goals are, which I think was said many times here today, but yet sure. maybe wasn't focused on as clearly as, as we are right now in this conversation. Chairman, I don't disagree with the Secretary's point. I think the Secretary's point is very, is very important. Look, Russia is going to suffer from this incursion in ways they can't even begin to imagine. You know, we thought we had a good handle on what the foreign terrorist fighter access was going to be coming into, coming out of Turkey into Syria. Everywhere I have gone in the Gulf and everywhere I have talked to our Arab partners, every one of them is saying the, the potential for a re-sparking of the global jihad is enormous as a direct result of this. So when Secretary Kerry says in order for this to move forward, they've got to stop killing uh, our people. What, what he's saying is they've got to stop killing the moderate Syrians who are, in fact, the political hope for the future in Syria. We're going to have to deal with Al-Qaeda eventually. Right. That's Jabhat al-Nusra. That's a big organization. Right. We're going to have to deal with Daesh. But when the Russians stop killing the moderate Syrian opposition, which is both their hope for the future as well as our hope for the future, then perhaps we can get to where we need to be. But um, they're going to have to feel some pain on this, and I think they're going to relatively soon. Well, listen, thank you uh, for those clarifications. Uh, we appreciate so much your service to our country for being here today in an open setting. And uh, we do look forward to following conversations uh, even after your retirement to help us uh, think through these issues. I appreciate you thank being you, such a tremendous asset to me in this position. I really do. And Ambassador Patterson, uh, we thank you for your continued professional service uh, in the toughest area of the world right now that we're dealing with relative to competing interest and uh, thank you thank you for being here today in the way you are with that uh, the record without uh, objection will remain open through Friday if y'all would fairly speedily answer any questions that come uh, forward at that time uh, uh, without objection that's the way it'll be and the meeting is adjourned